Hello and welcome to the next episode of The Podcast, the cannabis podcast for budding enthusiasts. You're joined by your boy Heavy Days. Before we get into it, a huge, huge thank you to our sponsors who help make this show happen. CTNR, number one seed bank in the business. Get all the hottest breeders, the latest drops, the most fire strains. Guarantee on satisfaction, not just germination. Why would you go anywhere else? Go hit them up. They got everything you need. Likewise, if you want to ensure your next harvest is the best to date, you need to check out Coppet Biological Systems. They got everything you need to make your harvest happy and healthy. Got mite problems? Grab the Spidex Vital. Got aphid problems? Grab the Aphipar. They got everything you need to make your crop happy, healthy, and your next harvest a success. Likewise, a huge, huge thank you to our newest sponsor for jumping on board. They've been in the industry for ages. You know them, you love them. ProMix, introduced back in 1968. They've always provided commercial growers with cutting edge and value-added growing media products. But now we've got a new one, ProMix Connect, a fantastic mycorrhizal inoculum. You want healthy and established root system with faster growth, increased crop yield, and better quality? Check out ProMix Connect for all your mycorrhizal products and mediums. Likewise, a big shout out to the Patreon gang. You guys know you are the lifeblood of the show. I cannot stress how much I appreciate you and how much you help to make the episodes happen. If you would like to help to continue to see episodes happen and get early access to content, additional unheard interviews, bonus listening material, and so much more, go check out www.patreon.com forward slash the podcast. It's that easy, guys. On this episode, we are lucky to have John of Green Bodie Genetics here to talk all things breeding, Oregon strain history, Buddhism, and so, so much more. I hope you guys are ready for it. Let's get into it. Alrighty, a big warm welcome to the man behind the Hazy Kush, the Tenzin Kush, the other Bodhi. This one's just a little bit more green. Thank you so much to John of Green Bodhi Genetics for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me. Really excited. Been um, watching you and hearing you for a long time, so really, really honored and um, pleasured by getting this opportunity. Yeah, not a problem. Not a problem. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing really good. Um, we just made it down to Los Angeles, down in Orange County here. Um, we've been kind of on a little trip. Um, my teacher and a few other of the venerables from His Holiness the Dalai Lama's monastery, Namgyal Monastery, are down here. We're um, They're here finalizing some things for a project that uh, my teacher's heading. It's a library museum project of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, um, and that's going to be in Ithaca, New York. But... Um, we're starting a center down here also um, in Westminster area, Orange County area for His Holiness the Dalai Lama. So they're going to have a small center here as well. Um, and they're just finalizing some things with that and also with a library museum project that's going to break ground in May. Wow, that must be a, a really sort of exciting time for, for you and the people around you. I guess the question it brings to mind to me is that 
there are a lot of people out there who are quite into Buddhism, quite into sort of Eastern spirituality. How do you feel that interplays with cannabis? Do you feel like there's overlap there? Well, of course. Um, well, for one, there's they're theorizing now that um, the true home of the cannabis plant is in the Tibetan plateau. So um, they're now finding source origins that that was one of the first places that it was. So, and in a lot of the, um, you know, deeper esoteric studies of Buddhism, Hinduism, um, Jainism, these different things, there's been talk and utilization of cannabis in, in a, in a multitude of different ways. Also in Taoism and Chinese herbal pharmacopoeia, these kind of things of, we've been utilizing this plant, um, medicinally and spiritually for thousands of years, you know, humans on all levels. But, um, in Buddhism, especially there's, there's certain practices and certain, um, things that there was association with cannabis in the form of bong, which is a, basically a steeped milk drink that they use cannabis. Um, so there were some practices that basically you drink the whole bottle of bong, you get locked in this rock hut you have um you do this particular practice ex have this particular experience and then you know so that's it's it's been utilized in the in buddhism and in a multitude of other um religions for thousands of years from my understanding even i mean when you talk about the you know with jesus and the holy anointed oil you know <laughs> from all of our understanding that was cannabis oil you know so um you know people say what they want and whatever but when you start researching and start studying what was being used what oil was a prize medicinal oil an anointing oil a healing oil back then it all started pointing towards cannabis wow i mean we we've had past guests talk about bung such as irizan um who gave us a little bit of a rundown of how that plays into the indian culture but a really interesting point you just brought up is how it the, the the sort of ceremony you just described sort of has a lot of parallels with like sort of the way people are really getting into ayahuasca these days. Have you ever seen that or noticed that yourself? Oh, for sure. Um, I've, you know, personally, I've drank ayahuasca, I don't know, 30, 40 times. Um, it was part of my preliminary studies and practices, you know, um, about 20 years ago. I actually wanted to be a shaman, you know, I thought I was gonna be one of those guys you know um till my first teacher um you know kind of laughed in my face and you know stated clearly how um how stupid that was and so <laughs> i didn't do that and instead went um you know utilized a plant that i'd already have a deep relationship with and went full force into that but utilizing these plants san pedro cactus ayahuasca salvia these different things to kind of um disentangle um the egoic you know anchor to some degree soften up the you know attachments from all your self-centeredness and give you a self-observation um format to a degree to where you can start seeing how fake you are yourself um or how you're not one or the other you know or both um so <clears throat> for us you know the ayahuasca um and especially when i talk about this drink bong, it was associated with a practice called Mahakala, which is a wrathful emanation of um, Buddha of compassion. It's a protector, but it's a it's in a wrathful form of compassion. Um, so 
which um, the, the the image of this this six armed um, wrathful protector is holding a skull cup of a reddish fluid they call rakti. Um, but you know we always make jokes that that's ayahuasca, you know, <laughs> so for years, you know. Um, but that being said, when you have a full fledged, full blown cannabis ingestion experience, you know. We all, under, I mean, anyone that's eating too much cannabis understands that that it's it's about as strong as it gets, you know. Um, ayahuasca, obviously, with the dimethyltryptamine and the MAO inhibitor from the Benisteriopsis copy, you know, basically the chacruna has the DMT alkaloid and the Benisteriopsis copy, the vine, um, has the MAO inhibitor. Um, so that induces a certain experience that's unique to, to those things, but... Um, from my experience, when you get into, say, the you know the apex of any experience, there's a lot of similarities there. So, the apex of an ayahuasca experience versus the apex of a heavy cannabis experience and through ingestion, um, they're quite different. But esoterically and emotionally, you can have a similar experience of, you know, death experience. Um, you know, heavy self-observation, analytical annihilation of your, you know, or an empowerment of, you know, some people, they don't utilize the plant in the appropriate way and it just empowers their ego. You know, we've seen these kooky wannabe shamans or um, also, you know, I mean, we're really familiar with the cannabis industry, so we can just use that. You know, there's never, I've never seen any other industry in the world and any other continuum of business that it can that a plant can promote such an ego such a, i'm the best such a you know i'm better than everyone else i'm what i have is better than yours it's i haven't seen that in any other any other thing so then i look at cannabis like ah oh, it's it maybe exacerbates the ego in a lot of ways or annihilates and disentangles the ego in a lot of ways um so it's a quite unique parallel that it has um ayahuasca on the other hand you know for me personally it was more of a you know holodeck of all my karmic experience and i was able to see the beginning point of a lot of my issues and why they were started why it got conditioned a certain way with cannabis i wasn't able to see it so clearly but more in a undertone was there you know you it, it happens in a way it's it just happens in a different way but a similar result can manifest in my perspective of um humbleness subdued subdued ego these kind of things that happen from both you know ayahuasca happens for me happened a little more richly um you know because i had it to the point of death experiences shamanic death kind of style things which that's hard to do some cannabis, at least for me, I'll just go to sleep, you know, um, versus ayahuasca. You have a death experience and you pass out cause you think you're dying sometimes cause you can't breathe. You're asphyxiating through hyperventilation and, and, um, you know, panic attack kind of thing. So you can pass out through that experience. Um, so when, for me personally, when I've had those level of experiences, cause my teacher was kind of a freak, um, he would take, um, we would get ayahuasca from the Shipibo in, out of Pucallpa, um, in the Amazon jungle. He would take that ayahuasca and he would reduce it by 75%. So if you have a liter, then you'd put it down to a quarter liter. Um, and then he'd give that. Um, so we'd, you know, 
the times I've had certain doses, they've been high doses of that kind of concentrated medicine to where you're, say, taking 200 milliliters, but in all actuality, it's near a liter you're drinking. Um, so that's that, that induces a different type of experience that, that our, our crew is, um, it's very integral to our crew. Um, so, you know, if you can't have a shamanic death, you can't have these death experiences, then um, your perspective of who you are, we feel is kind of limited because you don't get to see who you are when you have a death, you know. So if, once you do get to see who you are when you have a death and see who you're not, it um it opens a lot of um, information for you, opens a lot of awareness to your own mind and how you can work with yourself. So, I mean, both of those things come from my perspective, from ayahuasca and from cannabis, just in different forms, different formats, different message, different delivery. Um, but in the end, a similar result. So, Yeah, what a great little rundown on the comparisons and differences between the two. And so much of what you said really resonates with things I've been noticing in the community, especially how you talk about can the cannabis community or the plant kind of has this uncanny ability to draw in people who tend to be quite focused on ego. And the thing I've noticed recently is that I feel like there's very little consideration given to alternative perspectives within the scene, especially when you've got, say, two people who are having a disagreement. There's often very little room for considering the other person's point of view. What do you think it is about cannabis that does that compared to the psychedelics? You kind of reference dosages and you got me thinking, is it is the problem that with when smoking cannabis, generally speaking, you can't get a dose big enough to really approach that sort of ego death, which you can with, say, ayahuasca, and maybe you can approach it with the bang. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I think a lot of people with these, like, 1,000 milligram edibles have had that experience now, you know, because uh, <laughs> <laughs> they'll eat the whole candy bar, you know. And from my perspective, when something's extracted with hexane or extracted with a, you know, a hydrocarbon and then made into an edible um, something happens, something different happens from my perspective, you know? So there's all these different, um, avenues of extraction. They're going to promote a different type of result versus if you're doing a organic ethanol extraction or whether you're doing a, you know, water separation, ice hash, and then taking that product and putting it into MCT oil and then eating that, you know, there's, there's all kinds of different ways. So that's something to be considered as well, you know? Um, and I think that <clears throat> strain specific, you know, is, 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 is something, um, for me, most of the, the strains I like to smoke are going to induce a, um, high mentation capacity, um, analytical thought, um, or hyper analytical thought or hypercritical thought. So this kind of, um, experience that's induced from certain strains doesn't work for some people. And maybe someone that might, you know, be more CBD or indica prone, they smoke a high-end sativa or a high-end hybrid sativa, and they're having a panic attack thinking all kinds of weird thoughts, you know, like they took LSD or something. So it, de it depends on the person, you know. Um, one of the things my first teacher always told me is, is all, you know, every person has to know their vehicle, what works best for them, what foods work best for them. 
you know, does drinking lots of water work for you? Does it not? Does eating lots of meat work for you? Does it not? Does eating lots of veg work for you? Does it not? You know, so really analyzing your body and analyzing the fuels you're putting in it, you know, is really important. So for us, um, you know, organics is a big, a big facet in our life and every aspect of food, cannabis, all these type of things. Um, so, you know, I think cultivation methods, um, I think, um, environmental factors, all these things are going to lead to a certain experience or a certain, um, experience with the plant, you know, certain awareness, awareness level or not. You know, when we talk about people's, um, opinions <clears throat> and their inability to find balance in a conversation when there's disagreement, um, you know, it's, it's obviously it's hard in the cannabis industry because, I mean, it's hard in all aspects of society these days, you know. People can't disagree with each other without getting in a fight. It seems like it's, like, not cool to disagree anymore. It's not cool to think different. And, you know, that's I think that's maybe a, more of a societal thing, especially in Western societies where they're taught everything they think is special, they're special, their view is special, their perspective is special, all this kind of thing. In actuality, it's just perspective. It's not special. You're not special. Any being is not more special than any other being. You know, that's just not how it works in the reality of this universe. But ideologies and conditioning through Western mindsets, through other aspects of mindsets, have reinforced and conditioned this type of specialness into everyone to where I think we're experiencing that, especially in the cannabis industry, because this plant will exacerbate the ego or delineate the ego one or the other. And so when two people disagree, it's it's really hard, especially in our industry, for them to find some type of balance and common ground because, you know, most people aren't skilled in doing that. Most people aren't skilled in psychology and philosophy. Most people aren't skilled in these kind of esoteric studies that are basically based on recognizing the self, recognizing the problems of that it creates and recognizing the solutions to eliminate those problems. That's not something that's taught openly in the Western culture, you know, in, in Buddhist culture and in Asian cultures, um, it is, you know, and in the philosophies it is, you know, cause we don't believe in a self like, um, Western philosophies do. We don't believe in this. We believe it as an illusory thing that's created through conditions you know, so in that contest text, it can also be destroyed through conditions. So we don't, because we don't believe it's an inherent thing. We believe it's based off of dependence through other conditions, hence it being a result. So we don't believe it's something that's there. So we believe it's something that can be analyzed and destroyed um, versus other religions and other mindsets, they believe this self is there. The soul is special. You're special. And that's, I think, personally, a, a big part of that, why in the Western world, we can't disagree happily. We can't be like, no, that's what you think. Well, here's what I think. And everyone be like, wow, that's cool. We have different thoughts. We have different views. That's okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's another thing if we're trying to talk about it, you know, truth because a lot of western cultures now think that their perspective is truth and their truth you know and 
And we all know that's not true. <laughs> you know, we, your perspective is your opinion based off conditioning, based off awareness or ignorances that are developed through your life pattern. You know, so then you have this perspective. And until you can recognize that as such, it's hard to annihilate such a thing. It's hard to recognize such a thing as a problem. You know, so, you know, it's a, it's a, there's a lot of aspects to it, cultural, you know, and also plant-based you know, and from our perspective, karma-based, meaning the result of our actions. You know, a lot of us make a lot of actions in our younger life, eat a lot of poor foods, impute a lot of negative information into our brain. And then later in life, we say, hey, we want to do something special. We want to be a good person. We want, But we realize our actions don't align with that. All of our conditioning and all of our study and all of our work that we put in for the last however many decades or years – we realized it was done towards the wrong thing. It was done towards money. It was done towards success instead of done towards empathy, done towards open-heartedness, done towards compassion and helping others, you know, the things that actually, you know, are going to help this world. We can see like someone like Jeff Bezos, you know, through this whole COVID endeavor, he cashed out really hard. Is he helping anyone? Not a person, you know? So all that money, all that wealth, all that success, but he doesn't have a speck of empathy. So is he successful? He seems like a troll then, you know? seems not even like he's worth to be alive on Earth, you know? Because if you have that much money and success and you don't help and change this planet, you're garbage, you know? So I think these things aren't being promoted heavily in society, or I think they should, you know? And I think that's one thing that a lot of us are finding with this plant is that it kind of engages this compassionate, empathetic mind in us where we can see this in others, where we can see people need help, where we can want to help, where we can see this plant's going to help. Or, you know, we can buy more Rolexes, a new car, you know, show it all off on IG, you know, like, or we can do it that style. You know, there's a lot of different styles, you know. Um, but I think it's based more off of the conditions of society and where we're headed and where we are versus, you know, versus the plant's influence towards that, I guess. Yeah, most certainly. I think there's so much of what you said there that I've been noticing myself recently, particularly that, you know, a lot of people, yeah, are never really given a formal opportunity to learn about how to be self-reflective and consider where they fit into the picture and how their actions influence things. And kind of on that line of thinking, I've noticed recently that, at least from my perspective, there appears to be some medicine coming from an unlikely place, kind of traditionally the sort of instagram trolls like clout king and stan the man these guys who historically i just thought maybe provided a bit of a laugh recently i feel like they've kind of maybe inadvertently started helping people realize this and i noticed this when clout king came out with some branded cannabis which he was calling turds and then another line called yeah. mids and i was like <laughs> it, it kind of seems a bit like sarcastic and ironic on face value but i think he's actually trying to like wake people up to like the sort of clout chasing that we've kind of spoken about already and that you know it's not exactly the greatest thing what's your thoughts on them doing that do you see it kind of the way i do or do you just think it's just a troll no i, I like clout king what he's doing i don't know stan the man i don't know um that reference so i'm not familiar but you know i follow clout king and i i do a similar thing i like to like you know bring awareness through meme <laughs> or whatever you call it meaning um you know like what we call in buddhism there's a type of debate called reductio reductio ad absurdum where you posit the 
absurdity of a scenario or a position first. So you you basically posit the result of an erroneous position in the forefront. And in the in a debate standard, when you do that, you basically you take someone's position they have and you analyze the result of that position and you put that up in the forefront, but it's actually erroneous and kind of absurd. So they're going to, they're going to attack it, but you do that in a format to get them to attack themselves, you know, to them to negate their own idea. So it's a type of, um, type of a debate positioning, you know, but the more of the reductio ad absurdum is just positing the erroneous result of an idea in the forefront of a debate. So, I think a lot of these memes are like that, you know, like kind of a, not to say passive aggressive, but um, more a, a subliminal poke, you know, and we're going to, they're going to posit this idea that's, that's stupid basically, you know, in a, in, in the resultant format, meaning like, Hey, it's like this, isn't this cool? Or this is blah, blah, blah. And everyone's gonna be like, that's so stupid. Or that's so this, you know? And so what I've experienced is that people, you know, I'll posit these kind of ideas as like, you know, this is, this is, this is dumb. It's not cool. It's not beneficial for self or humanity. And a lot of people will get it. And a lot of people will get turned on by it and be like, oh yeah, we're down with that. But then there'll be those people that are like, you're so stupid. You don't know what you're talking about. You're lame. You know, just come into the DM, start calling you names. You know, It's like, wow. Um, so, so I'm totally into it. You know, I'm kind of, you know, I have people even be like, who is this green Bodhi guy? He says he's a Buddhist and he like does this, you know, it's like, (laughs) it makes me laugh. You know, I was just talking with my teacher, you know, well, we went to the, you know, we went to whole foods so we can get some coffee filters, you know? So, and he needed some allergy medicine or something too. So we went over there and we're laughing. Um, you know, we're talking about this, you know, talking about how people think once you're a Buddhist, you're supposed to be enlightened, you know? He's like, oh, even people think with monks, you know, even we're monk of His Holiness the Dalai Lama that we're supposed to be enlightened, you know? He's all that we're not supposed to get angry or eat meat or anything like that. He's all so stupid, <laughs> you know? Because the reality is, is we're all human. And if we were enlightened, we wouldn't be on a spiritual path to evolve, you know? We wouldn't have chosen a path to try to deal with all our ignorances and our own, you know, lame ways of being we wouldn't have to you know so yeah so it's 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 an interesting um dichotomy what's happening now i think with this whole woke mentality spirituality you know you can go do ayahuasca in any city in the nation you know with some wacko wannabe shaman or some you know shaman that some other wacko like brought here to make money off of and make business off of it's like it's sad, you know, um, but it's a societal norm right now. So this kind of, um, you know, these meme lords that are that are um, sharing their perspective and trying to shed light on the, the the ignorances of our industry and our scene. I think it's awesome. I love it. It's cool. So that's my perspective of it. Yeah. And one I can certainly understand in certain regards Something which I wanted to loop back to because you mentioned it a bit earlier was you said you like smoking strains that are kind of more mentally stimulating, stimulating clarity and reflection. Out of curiosity, what are some of the strains which for you at least achieve that? 
Um, I mean, my favorite strain that I'm smoking on right now is this um, Purple Hindu Kush that I got from uh, Mr. Bob Hempill. Uh, is his uh, IG handle. Um, his genetics company um, with his wife is Crickets and Cicada. And he's one of the um, more popular, respected, and cool um, strain collectors of the last couple decades. So that's that's actually what I've been I'm really enjoying right now because it offers this full range of what I'm going for from you know stimulating mindset to also high satisfaction kind of. OG subdued kind of, but it still has this very stimulating aspect to it. Um, so that's what I'm, I'm liking on right now. But other than that, um, this sour OG from Amico Seeds, it's a, um, it's a Hell's Angels OG by Sour D's Libiel. Um, that one I crossed the 78 OG LA Affy to, making the tens and cushions. Those are really I really like a lot because it's it brings this really high end stimulating aspect, but then it still has this chem OG kind of satisfying you're there vibe, you know. Um, the hazy Kush was is another one that induces that, but that'll induce a type of euphoria after a half hour or so of this kind of racy, edgy onset that'll. You know, some people love, some people don't like it all because it, you know, make give give you that lip sweat, give you that kind of, you know, hyper anxiety to some degrees. If if, if that's how your chemistry is, um, so those are those are those are the strains I've really been liking a lot um, for those for those, that kind of avenue. Personally, um, yeah. Um, I'm not really a sativa or an indica. I'm I'm really focused mainly on hybrids for what I'm what I'm liking personally, you know. Um, so, yeah, great answer and some good starting points for people to go look into if they're into that sort of thing. I know that I personally love exactly what you're talking about. You know, those mentally stimulating sativas, and for what it's worth, the one I've always really enjoyed, which admittedly haven't been able to have that much access to, was Genius from uh, Brothers Grimm. That was just a phenomenal strain for sort of that mental clarity. Just to loop back to a point you mentioned just before the initial one I loop back to, you mentioned that um, there's some current sort of debate around, or discussion at least, around whether the origin place of cannabis is sort of maybe around the Himalayan region. And it got me wondering, do you or have you ever been able to smoke much sort of Nepalese or maybe even like the Chinese strains we see? And re, um, either way, do you want to work with those strains going forward or are they a bit too sort of land racy? Um, I have smoked some of them and um, they're not necessarily too land racy. More, I mean, and I do have a, a few things from China right now and I have quite a few things from the Nepalese, Himalayan region, and then also Laos. Um, the um, Bodhi gave me some Laotian land race years back, and I popped a bunch of those, and those were very similar to Hazy Kush. So I was really shocked, you know. Um, I busted these out, and I was like, whoa, this is weird. It smells just like Hazy Kush. This is true. Man, it grows just like it, too. This is so weird, you know. So, of course, I crossed that the Hazy into that, too, but so 
that was um, one land race from Asia that I really did like. And I have some things up from northern India, closer to, you know, more on the western side of the Himalaya, obviously. But I don't have, I haven't really sourced a lot from the Tibetan plateau or from even Siberian plateau. I have some stuff from up in Siberia, but it's, it's, you know, some different autoflower stuff, some, some other things that I'm trying to look through Crimeans, Crimean stuff. It's, I'm, I'm just unfamiliar, um, with the history on some of these things. So I don't, I don't really know. I, I started some of it, but it was, wasn't what I was looking for. So, um, I didn't go into work with any of it too much. So, I would um I would like to see a little more information though on you know the history of the gene pool. I do know that like what they're what they're saying from the Tibetan plateau, I don't even actually know what strain that is, but they're saying the earliest cannabis origins they're it's pointing to there now. Um if you research it, it's pretty easy to find Google searches of it, but um so I thought that was quite interesting, you know. So. Yeah, certainly. I mean it's kind of always been thought it was sort of around that area near the Afghan sort of border with the Himalayas. So certainly seems like there could be some credibility in that one. Just to take us back to the question we normally ask guests when we start the episode, what are you smoking on today or what do you plan on smoking on later today if you haven't already? Uh, that purple Hindu Kush that I was mentioning. It's pretty much my right now. It's been my go-to all day, all night kind of thing. Um, so that's kind of... Yeah, I've been smoking it all day and all night. If I want to mix it up a little bit, I'll grind up some, you know, bubble hash in with it and then take bong hits of that. Pretty simple. I don't, um, even though I have access and I have, you know, 30, 30 flowers to choose from, I still just put one or two in my jar. <laughs> and I give away all the rest and I smoke those two strains, three strains usually. I mean, I can certainly vouch that Many of the cultivars in Bob Hampel's library are just simply lovely. What is it about this purple Hindu Kush that you're a fan of? Because we've heard a lot of people go to great lengths to try to differentiate this particular cut. Apparently, it's quite old. It's not the normal purple Kush that goes around. It's definitely not Jaeger, which is kind of sometimes um, confused as this purple Kush in Oregon. What's your thoughts on this one? Is it totally different to others or just a sort of improved version of the other purple Kushes we see? Um, well, it's kind of interesting cause, um, you know, the first purple Kush I got was in 90, 92 in, in Ridgecrest, you know, there were some guys bringing some purple Kush down in there from Oregon and I was buying a lot of it and obviously selling my three quarters and getting a quarter for free, you know? So, um, and then just like stacking up as many quarters as I could so we can all, you know, me and the, me and the homies can all just puff and rage this purple Kush, right? Um, so from then to now, I've had quite a few different iterations of it. Um, and this is by far, you know, the best makes, um, I mean, in my own opinion, it makes the high from Jaeger kind of subpar. Um, it's very interesting, this, this strain, cause it has like a orangey tangy terp in it also, which is, you know, kind of reminds me of tangy land a little bit, but, um, it's just more funky, more kind of OG fuely, more kind of even like, oh no, it just has all these exotic notes that are just on another level. 
and the high is just untouchable. I haven't, you know, I haven't found something I enjoyed more to this point yet right now. Um, it's, it's one of my favorites and everyone that I've smoked out with it is in the same boat. They're just like, Whoa, what was that? You know? So it's, it's something special. Um, and, and then like every time I keep giving, um, uh, Mr. Rob Hempel props on it, he's always like, she's a special one. <laughs> That's all he replies. <laughs> she's a special one. She's a special one. <laughs> you said that a bunch of times now. She's a special one. <laughs> it's, and it's like that, you know? Um, so that's kind of where I'm at with that right now. Yeah. Awesome. And a, a good little rundown in the comparison. So take me back. What was your first ever experience with cannabis? Oh, that was a long time ago. Um, I'm 46 now. So I was six years old and I was in Nebraska. I think I was six, five or six years old. And me and my neighbor friend, um, you know, we, he lived across the alley from me in the back. And so the alleyway was our kind of like play zone. And we were, we, you know, you know, back then in the eighties and it didn't really matter. You know, you didn't have to have someone watching you, you know, you walked home from school, you walked to the babysitter, you played all day until night, you know, that kind of vibe, you know, um, you know, nobody kidnapping kids is like they are now, you know, but well, it wasn't, I don't know, probably was happening then too. But anyway, that being said, we're, we, me and my friend were playing and we see these plants in this guy's backyard and they were just like calling us, you know, I just remember them like in the breeze moving, like I'm just like, I wanted them, you know? So me and my friend jumped this guy's fence, um, and ripped these plants out of the ground and took them back to my house, you know? And then I took them to the house and I had them, you know, had one of those little blue swimming pools. It's in Lincoln, Nebraska, you know, one of those, um, and I, a little, um, just little plastic pools that I mix oil in or whatever, you know, a little kiddie pool. So we put all those plants in there and then filled it with water. And then we were just like tromping around, like kind of like a wine crush, you know, just like, boop, boop, boop. And my dad comes out and like, what the fuck? You know, like what is going on? We're like, what? <laughs> we didn't know what was going on. So that was my first experience with cannabis, you know. Um, my first experience ingesting it, I think I was, I was in Eugene and I was 10 years old and two different times. I remember, um, one kid, uh, middle schooler kids like, Hey John, come here, try this, you know? And I tried a little hit of what he had in a little pipe and, um, and nothing really happened. And then the next time was right around that time, um, near this, um, place called WizTech or Cuthbert, um, Cuthbert, um, amphitheater in Eugene near the UVO stadium. There's, there's like some canoe shoots and there was this kid there and, you know, you know, a few years older than me too. He's like, Hey, come here. You want to try this? I said, yeah, I walked over. So what is it? And he busted out this little foil, had some hash in it with some gold, like look like Asian lettering on it, like stamp, like tie probably. And he rolled up a little ball, popped it in this pipe and me and him smoked this little bowl. And I just went about my way, you know, I don't know if I even felt it then either, you know? Um, so those are my like, Around that same time, my, another friend of mine in Eugene's dad was growing a big field of weed in his backyard, hemp or something, and we ripped a bunch of those plants out of the ground and dried them on my roof and smoked it. When you know, I found a found a, some bamboo down the way, so I cut a you know segment of bamboo, made my own little pipe. This whole thing, you know, none of this is you know, I'm just you know free free flowing. You know, I haven't learned this anywhere. My parents, you know, my dad was the military, all this, but. So maybe it was like past life stuff, you know, or something. <laughs> but, so a lot of it came very natural, you know. So 
Well, it's funny when in the, the the my friend's dad that had the field in Eugene, and we just took the plants out, ripped them right out fresh. But he had the shed that he was drying all the stuff in, and we looked in there, and I remember looking, it was all brown and weird looking. So we're like, ah, let's just take this fresh green stuff, you know. And so those are my those are my first experiences with cannabis, and then you know it was until I was in high school, um, really before I started um, experimenting, you know. There you go. And I mean, you, you brought up a, a great little segue there in that I had read online that you grew up as sort of a, a military child. And um, then as a teenager, you kind of started experimenting with psychedelics. How did all of that play into being a military child? I can only imagine it was kind of a bit frowned on. How did you get around that sort of obstacle of the family? Well, um, you know, like, so basically... You know, I wanted to, what's crazy, I wanted to be a youth pastor when I was younger, you know, so I was like, you know, kind of, I was going to Christian schools, training to do that, and then had some really cool experiences happen, and the church I was going to didn't really, um, you know, they, they didn't vibe with my experience very well, you know, so whatever. Um, that being said, my dad was like, very strict military, my mom's Asian, um, so, you know, we had quite a strict household, but when I was 18, I was kind of allowed to do what I wanted. Um, so, you know, started experimenting with everything, but even at, at that time, you know, we were experimenting with everything because we were out in Ridgecrest, it's out in the Mojave desert, you know, all the kids are boiling pods of gypsum weed, you know, like, you know, eating, eating like gypsum, you know, loco weed, like, um, you know, detura, detura you know, moonflower, you know, the one, the loco weed that grows out in the desert, yeah, yeah, yeah. they're, 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 they're all poisoning themselves with this, these like gypsum weed pods, you know, so they're all having, having their stomachs pumped, having these like three day psychedelic experiences, you know, or, you know, and the, the, the gypsum weed experience isn't a fun psychedelic experience. It's like one where you go blind and you like <laughs> have all these crazy, scary, scary trips, you know, um, that being said, so we're, you know, we were kind of a weird little town. So, you know, we'd do things like drink Robitussin, you know, I'd drink like, you know, everyone drink one bottle, I drink two, you know, we'd take boxes of Marazine, which is like this motion sickness pill. You eat the whole box, you get psychedelic, you know, you actually have true hallucinations, you know? So this is like kind of what I grew up around. So we're just continually experimenting with everything, then mushrooms and LSD, then all that stuff. And, you know, just being a, just being like that kind of kid, I think from the time I was 18 to 23, I wasn't, um, I didn't have much agenda. I was still wanting to, you know, at that point I was wanting to go into the special forces, wanting to go in the green berets and try to go Delta and try to be like a mercenary killer. You know, that was kind of my mindset. Um, but I was out in Georgia and, you know, ended up getting a, a 30 strip of L, but I thought it was a 10 strip cause it was given to me as a 10 strip. Um, so I cut it in 10 rectangles instead of 30 pieces and I ate a few of those and, you know, um, had quite the experience, obviously. And when I was coming down, I was watching this cartoon called Spawn you know, by Tim McFarlane. And, you know, kind of saw my future if I was going to go into the Green Berets and what was, you know, I just, it was a very trippy, it was very trippy to see that tripped out. And then, so that kind of changed my, changed my trajectory. And, and that's when I moved to Eugene and, you know, just bartending, started growing herb, you know, and, stopped bartending only growing herb and that's kind of the all that luckily i was in contact with quite a few good um elders of um the eugene community that saw something in me and started sharing literature and information with me that you know set me on a different path basically kind of opened my eyes to a different um different type of warriorship i guess you know instead of being like a warrior that kills people you know, a warrior that like 
is set out and steadfast for helping others, you know? <laughs> so just different, different. I mean, even then I wanted to be a, the best killer on earth to help people, you know? So the intention was right. It's just the, everything else wasn't, you know? So. Yeah, certainly. And so, I mean, growing up with those elders influence on you, it must've been a bit of a leg up to have, to not go through exactly all the trials and tribulations people do when they're kind of learning the ropes themselves. What were some of the strains that they were growing or that you were gifted at the time? And what sort of like um, setup were you using? Was it like just basic lights indoor? Give us a bit of a rundown on how you first started growing. Well, how I first started growing, um, right when I moved to Eugene, this was in 97, 97, I think, 90, end of 97. Um, I instantly started growing peppers, um, habanero, scotch, scotch bonnet, all these different datil, all these different spicy peppers. Cause I had allergies really bad in the Willamette Valley area and I was using these peppers. I was eating them just to like deal with my allergies. And then I put a couple seeds in a spider plant in my bedroom and they sprouted. And I was like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grow these things, you know? So then I made this little makeshift closet set up with like styrofoam walls and all that. The little light that, you know, 150 watt or 250 watt light that's like a, you know, a parking lot light, you know, that you use for like a, it was off of a dentist, a dentist office parking with parking, parking lot light, you know? I used that. And then I had another little um, light that I was using, you know? And so, and then I built a little makeshift closet box after this, you know, my first run actually with these, you know, seeds out of the spider plant and I grew it all hermed. They had seeds. It was garbage, you know, like straight garbage, you know, and I was like, oh, I'm going to do it right. So I built a little box, put this light and then put a 400 watt watt in there. So I had the 400 plus the 250 and built a little box in my closet. And then I had the strains that I had there. Obviously, Eugene was kind of a, you know, a hub for good weed. So I first started growing with a strain called Trinity, um, another strain called Big Sur Holy, and then Blueberry and Blueberry Trin, and another strain called IDK, which stood for I don't know, but it was, you know, Eugene Chronic strain. So obviously Trinity has the lore and the, it's like legend strain from Eugene for like, you know, forever still. Um, and then the other strains are pretty apparent. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that's kind of how it started. And then the second grow after that little closet, I made my whole closet to grow and just had a trap door and then, you know, went from the 650 watts to a thousand watt and then we went to 2000 watt, then 4000 watt, then 8000 watt, you know, and then it's just like that, you know, you just keep leapfrogging up, doubling up and that's kind of how it started. Yeah, fantastic. Trinity is an interesting one because it's kind of... I feel like it's it's one of those strains where it's like everyone has super fond memories of it, but no one really kept it on lockdown. And it brings up this idea of like, why do you think it is there are these strains which people revere so much, but at the same time, seemingly no one was able to really hang on to a cut. Or if there is a cut around now, there's some people who are a bit like, oh, I'm not really sure if it's the real one still. How do you think we got to this point? <laughs> I was the last one in Eugene that I knew that had the cut and I let it go because I thought it was lame after, after a certain point, you know. Um, it was having these uh, little seed pods in it, you know. Um, and it was just having some degradation, I think. But that could have just been my ignorance at the time and me not knowing how to deal with the plant in the, in the same way. So I, I let it go because I thought it was it was boring to me after, you know, that many years, you know. And... The new the new trend that's around definitely isn't that 
you know, the future trend definitely wasn't that. Um, and we got a bunch of Trinity strains since then that were almost identical, but they weren't that. So, um, you know, a lot of these strains, it's like usually, you know, there's a person that's holding a lot of these. Once that person decides to let it go, a lot of times it goes away because, you know, people aren't that good at holding on to genetics. People aren't that committed at holding on to a hundred mothers, you know, or just going to have a space just to keep their staple of genetics. You know, that's just, especially now it's kind of rare. I mean, I wish I still had that first trend, but you know, at a certain point you get over it and it's not worth keeping anymore. Yeah. That's kind of how it is for me, you know, like the golden pineapple, um, it was it was a great one for a long time. I smoked it a lot. Now I don't even want to smoke it. You know, it's not something that I put in my jar, even though it's everyone loves it. Every you know new smoker loves it. Every you know it's just, but it's just not my uh, not in the not in my cup of tea anymore. Yeah, understandably, after having enjoyed something for a long period of time, you kind of look for the sort of new and better things. I love that you mentioned the golden pineapple because it's. I'm one of those people you just referenced. I love it. I I'm not burnt out on it. It's um. It's some lovely stuff. Is this what you would consider one of the sort of high quality genetics which has been around Eugene for a while? I remember I read something. I think it might have been online. It kind of said you moved back to Eugene and found that there was all these sort of high quality genetics and clones that were held by the community around there was this one of them and what were some of the other ones that you really enjoyed from that scene well i mean like i was saying um you know i held a lot of these things and and i was the one that actually passed the golden pineapple around eugene um i got it from a friend um, there's this person that brought the, brought the golden pineapple to Eugene on Instagram. His, um, handle is shad glass. And he's the one that actually brought that cut to Eugene and brought it out of hood river. Um, so yeah, that, that was one of them, um, for sure. But I, you know, when I got that, uh, you know, at that time we had a huge amount of genetics in the town, you know? Um, so like I had, you know, when you, it's very interesting when you have certain strains, um, and you hold certain strains and everyone knows you to hold them without giving them out, you can get lots of strains and people will give you lots of strains. I mean, even look at the, I had a strain called the Eugene lemon diesel. I brought it down to, um, Santa Cruz. Next thing you know, lemon tree pops out. Hmm, imagine that, you know, um, you bring this strain that's the Eugene lemon diesel to a town. And next thing you know, all these strains start popping out of it, you know? <laughs> and then I found out from my, um, you know, Santa Cruz cannabis companies all, Oh dude, <laughs> you're the one that brought that, that to Santa Cruz. Cause that's where the, the lemon tree came out of. I said, Oh, I know. <laughs> and you know, <laughs> but a lot of people don't want to say that, you know, because it doesn't sound good for them anymore. You know what I mean? That I started selling the lemon diesel out of a dispensary called creme de canna out of Santa Cruz. And I brought the golden pineapple down there too. And the silver surfer. Um, and we started selling them out of their dispensary. Next thing you know, all these brands start popping up, you know? <laughs> so it's funny, you know, normal, very normal. 
Yeah, it's interesting to hear that. I I just want to quickly ask, we've often heard that the uh, lemon tree is some sort of lemon skunk hybrid. Do you think it's maybe just a relabeled lemon diesel that came from you or do you think there's maybe some sort of pollination and it was like a seed from that? Oh, yeah, I don't honestly, I don't really know, you know, because anytime I've been around those guys, they're super weird to me. So I just assume there's some truth to something, you know. So I don't, I don't really know, you know what I mean? I can't say, but I do know that the, the lemon tree definitely isn't the lemon diesel because it's not as good. Um, it's not even close to as good, but in, it grows different too. Um, grows a little faster, a little bushier. You know, the, the, the true lemon diesel was, was straight lemon pledge, lemon rind. And I mean, it, I couldn't, I never smelt a strain more lemony than that but the way it grew was this very slow stout kind of afghani style but like it had very tight you know kind of like the master kush but a little you know it's just very interesting but it grew more missily and um but very tight very slow growing very tight to the stalk yeah okay so i don't really know really when um he told me that i was like oh that makes a lot of sense you know yeah, sure. Maybe one day we'll find out the answer. Another sort of genetic that I was hoping you might be able to give me a bit of a rundown is I've seen you work with the uh, best shit ever and the sour best shit ever. This is These are sort of old school cuts where the origins are a bit cloudy. You know, you've got some people in the scene who kind of try to claim ownership over them and other people just say, look, it's not really known. <laughs> and uh, I think we know who we're talking about. <coughs> Yeah, I think there's only one person claiming ownership of the sour best shit ever, and he's a complete kook, you know? So <clears throat> other than that, because you, you can tell because this guy will steal, like, you know, he would he would steal our photos, you know, and he would use them on Neptune Seed Bank, you know, as his own photos trying to sell the sour best shit ever, but it was Tenzin Kush number two, you know? And so, like, anyway, yeah. So if someone's willing to steal and use someone else's photos as their own, I'm sure they did that with that strain too, you know what I'm saying? And from my from my understanding with um you know with that person and where that who I got the cut from and how they you know there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of a lot of a lot of sinister stuff around that kind of reality. You know? Yeah, definitely. The thing about it, which hopefully I'd like to get some perspective from you on, is what do you think are the genetics within it? We've heard some people say that it's a whole range of different things. We've heard more recently people express it. It's probably just some sort of OGS1. Where do you sit on that? Well, that's what I've been saying, um, honestly. Um, you know, the person that, uh, you know, um, said it's a lemon tie by this, that, and the other. Well, when I tested it with Phylos some um, years back, you know, um, there, it wasn't related to any of those genetics and they said it was an identical clone of OG Kush. It's an OG Kush clone is what they said. But they also said that with fire OG, ghost OG, OG Kush, all that. So, um, we just, we just say it's an S1 because, you know, I don't think Phylos could see if it was an S1 or not, if they're saying it's an identical clone. And I talked to, um, you know, people about this and they agreed. So, you know, I don't know what to say. It seems like a, it seems like OG Kush to me. It seems like an S1 of OG. That's just kind of how it seems like to me. Yeah, sure. I think there's definitely a gathering pool of weight to sort of support that. Kind of similarly, I've seen that you work with a male that you call the 78 LA Affy OG. And this is interesting because 
it pop that name sort of pops up in other places like there's the DNA release of LA Con which sort of alludes to a similar sort of parent but it might be different. What's this male and what does it bring to the table for you and is it the similar sort of one that we saw with the Bombay Kush or it's just a similar sort of name? Um, I'm not really sure to be honest. I got the pollen from um, um, my friend. He goes by Andrew Puffin on Instagram and he got the seeds from Leo from Aficionado and they were, you know, what they were labeled. So um, there's a big story and a, you know, history of how those seeds were acquired and how, you know, what happened and all that, which I don't really want to get into. It's none of my business and I don't really know what's true or not. So I don't even want to start to project, you know. Um, so that's kind of what's up with that. The genetic pool of it, I don't really know. You know, like you could, we can say it's one thing and say it's another, but anyone that's talking about it, I just, it's hard for me to believe because um, nobody really knows. And when I do genetic tests on it, it doesn't hit the marks that they're saying it is. So, you know. That's kind of where I've been at with it. I do like the genetic profile of what it's offered. Um, that's for sure. So that's why I'm continually I'm working with it, and that's why I got, you know, my my buddy got he basically did a seed increase on it, and so we got I got more of that from him. Yeah, nice. And so, how does this play into, or maybe more better put? Can you give us a bit of a rundown on the backstory of the Tenzin Kush and how the genesis of that sort of came about? Yeah, so basically, um, uh, so basically, the Sauro G from Amico is um, I really liked a lot, and so when I got that pollen, I got that pollen um, from someone from Drew, and I it was handed to me in a little pill bottle, you know, like a little um, just a pill, you know. There's a, a, a little bit like if you were to you know, it was a double lot pill and it had maybe like a half of a pea, half of a pea size worth of pollen in there. So I basically put that by the golden pineapple and the sour OG and the sour best shit ever. Um, and then just pop some seeds out of it. And then every one out of the sour OG cross was good. Every single one. Um, and so that's why I kind of grabbed an affinity towards it and, started working with it is just because I like the high so much and there's CBD potential in it. Um, but other than that, you know, that was, that was the reason I started working with it to be honest. And then the reason I started running with it is because what was being produced on the female end was so, so awesome. I just couldn't, um, you know, I just wanted to keep going with it. So Started working with some males, finding some good males, throwing in some, buy some things, and getting some good results. So I was pretty happy. Nice. And I've noticed online that there's a few different phenotypes you like. I think I remember seeing the number two and the number four. How would they differ in terms of if people were going to get one of those crosses and they're wondering, you know, what's this one bringing to the table versus the other? How would you kind of give them the comparison? Well, the the Tenzin Kush number two is more like a um, souped up sour diesel. You know, it has a lot of these camp notes, a lot of a lot of diesely fuel notes, um, but it's going to be more stimulating, even more than the sour. Even um, the the richness of it and the complexity, the terpene profile is a lot more complex. You know, a lot more lime notes, a lot more. I mean, it almost smells like super glue or kind of. Um, you know those kind of those kind of um, those kind of uh, those kind of um, 
notes to it, but the Tenzin floor has this sandalwood, incense, kush, perfume kind of, and and it's they look totally different. The Tenzin kush number four is purple, silver, very beautiful, and the Tenzin two is very lime green, very like um, soury looking, you know. Um, so that's 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 the difference of them um, on that context of the, the high. On on um, the other hand, is is quite different. The um, the high on the tens and four is going to be more OG, more you know Kush Kush LA Kush cake kind of vibe high um, versus the high on the tens and two. It's going to be more stimulating, more you know chem diesel kind of you know maybe give someone anxiety kind of high. Ooh, interesting, interesting. On the other end of the spectrum, we've got the more sort of uh, sativa offerings from you being like the hazy kush and the mystery kush, which is kind of built off that. What was the backstory on those ones? And was it intentional that you wanted to have these two sort of opposite sort of flagship strains or it just kind of came about that way? Yeah, no, it's um, it just came about that way. So basically the golden pineapple, I crossed the OG kush sage from TH seeds into the um this strain called the dawn or kid next door um is a classic eugene strain which was a um train wreck by purple affy so i crossed the og kush sage by that grabbed some males out of that put it to the golden made the hazy kush um and pretty much every single pheno that came out of that cross was epic and so then I back crossed it, um, and then we popped this seed, and we didn't know what it was. Hence, it was called the mystery. But then it was the daughter of the hazy, you know. So um, the mystery Kush was just, or mystery haze was just that. It was just basically the daughter of the hazy Kush, um, and that's what, and that's what's up with that. So just a back cross of hazy, basically, that we didn't know in the beginning, and then uh, we figured it out through testing and everything. Yeah, sure. So I mean. Talking about the back cross, what sort of a male do you want to pick when you're looking to do a back cross? If you make an F1 hybrid with hazy cush and you think, all right, I'll use this, a male from this, back cross it to the hazy cush and we'll get our BX1. Do you look for like the most hazy cush leaning male, so to speak? Or how do you go about that process of creating that line bred strain? Well, a lot of times when I'm doing, um, you know, so like when I did the, the Tenzin cross, I use four males. I pick my four best males, and I use those four because I wanted to get a a, a, a a larger genetic swath swath of the of the, of the gene pool. And what was crazy doing that? It felt like I didn't get that. I felt like I got more, you know, of the same. All the progeny that I popped, they were all very similar, you know. So I, I always I think that's quite interesting that when I do these kind of multi male pollinations how similar all the strains that come out of it, how all the, the, the phenos that come out of it are. I thought they'd be a lot different, um, but they're actually usually more close to the line, you know? So that's kind of how I do it personally. I pick my best males and I give more options. I don't really like to pick just one male. That's just not how I do it personally. Um, you know, I have, but that's just not generally how I do it. Okay, and do you like to keep males and when you re-release seeds, you're kind of remaking it in the same way or do you like to have like a pool of seeds, pop some new ones, pick a new male and sort of like each offering is its own sort of unique thing? 
it just depends on what I'm going for, honestly. Um, you know, right now, like I, I, I did a femline. I reversed the hazy and I made some stuff with that. So I'm testing that right now as one of my first reversal lines. So I'm seeing if they're all good before I release any. Um, other than that, you know, really, I'm just trying to f- see and find what I am in tune with most. You know, right now, um, Bodhi gave me um, Larry OG by Purple and Unicorn F3 that I'm going to try to make some purple OGs with. Um, so I have that. I have a indigo child male that's from um mass medicinals that i might throw into some things and then i have some other stuff at home that i'm going to start sourcing some things to find some males with personally you know yeah wow it looks like you've got some interesting options on the horizon give me a little bit of a rundown about uh how you first came to befriend with bodhi i find everyone's always really interested in the origins of bodhi friendships and i guess What's kind of interesting is, you know, with the very similar names, people might have mistakenly thought there was some tension there or something like <laughs> that. But uh, I get the impression it's the opposite. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't remember actually when I met Bodhi. Actually, 2000, when we personally met, I think it was 2000, what is it, 2021, 2014, maybe, 13, the Emerald Cup. Um, yeah, no. And, and, and I, the first I'd heard about Bodhi, which is very funny is, um, I was in Santa Cruz and I was doing a lot of work there and I was selling herb to this spot. Um, Santa Cruz mountain naturals and Aptos, you know? And, and I went in there and the guy's like, Hey, do you know Bodhi seeds? And I was like, are you fucking kidding? Someone's like ripping off my fucking name. But really? I was like, are you kidding? He's like, no man, it's Bodhi seeds. He's a fucking G. I was like, really? I said, okay, cool. You know? And I just like, you know, I didn't really do much research. I was at that time. I was like, Oh, that's interesting, you know? Um, but then I did a little more research and saw like, cause I was never in the forums. That's just wasn't a part of my thing. You know, I didn't know any of that. I didn't know that world even existed to be honest. So, um, when I found out, um, what's funny is I, I find out from all these old heads, they tell me about the forums, you know what I mean? Um, you know, my friend Mike, he's Kagyu or coastal seeds and another friend of mine, um, you know, Katsu seeds is, uh, Bob, you know, he's t- so they're telling me all this stuff about the forums, and I'm like, oh, sick. And I didn't really know that that was going on, so it was like, it was interesting. So then when I was talking to Steve a lot, or, or Bodhi, sorry, um, about all this, and he's telling me everything, we're just getting familiar with it all. I was like, it was very interesting, you know, because it was just something was out of my league, you know, it was out of my realm. I didn't know that because I was in Eugene, so I didn't have to go get it, I didn't have to go seek it. It was there, I was there, you know, it was like the mecca of of heady herb, you know? So I didn't, there wasn't, you know, it just wasn't a part of our wheelhouse, but even my friend Katsu sees, he was telling me, he's all dude, he's all back in the day, bro. I would send clones to people all over the nation through forums. I was like, what? He's all, yeah, bro. Like I, if you lived in Kansas city and you want a chem dog, Bubba Kush, OG Kush, I would send you all the cuts. I was like, one fucking legend, you know, <laughs> so, so sick. But that's what I was doing in Eugene. Kind of, I was offering people all, a lot of cuts, you know. But that being said, so you know, me and me and me and Bodie befriended, and just we found a lot of similarities just in vibe. You know, we what was funny is we actually most of the time when we hang out and we've hung out over these years, we don't talk about herb. We talk about travel, spiritual practice, different, you know, philosophic studies, different things. You know, it's like very, very little, little, little about weed, you know. And um, 
what's so crazy is that one of the last times I was hanging out with him, um, we started talking and, you know, as we were talking about Peru and, you know, first time I went down there and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I was telling him, I was like, oh, I went down to the first Amazonian Shamana conference in Iquitos. You know, he's all, what? Soga de Lama? I was there. I said, what? He's all, yeah, I was there. I was like, oh, that's so funny because that's where I actually had um, come up with my name, you know? Um, he's all, yeah, man, I didn't have the money to go into the, the conference. So I went down to Pucallpa, I think he said, or went on a different journey, you know, I said, that's fucking crazy, man. Cause that's where I come in contact with my first teacher where I actually spawned the name Green Bodhi because, you know, he was basically a crazy wisdom, you know, kind of like the real Don Juan, you know, he's last Incan royal descendant of the royal family, basically left everything in um, Peru to go to India, took his two sons to India, learned Buddhist Dharma there for three years under the Karmakadi lineage, come back to Peru, right? So I met him there. And so he was basically teaching, you know, the path of wisdom and enlightenment through the, through the wisdom plants and the power plants in association with quantum physics and Buddhist Dharma, you know? So I was like, ah, oh, you know, like green Bodhi, meaning the enlightenment that, that derived from the wisdom plants, the green, you know, so that's the, where the name spawned from that moment. So it's like, very interesting, all these very interesting parallels, you know? And so, like, you know, we were talking some years, a few years, four, three or four years ago, three years back, and I was like, oh, we should do a, we should do a collab to show that, like, that we're different, you know, and that, but that we're, like, homies and shit. He's all, we should do that, you know? And I was like, oh, we should donate all the money to his Holiness Library Museum project, you know? And he's all, that sounds awesome. So, yeah, he, um, he gave me uh, four ancient OG males that he had, that he had uh, pheno-hunted, or someone might have pheno-hunted for him. I can't remember. Those are the best ones he picked, though, and he gave me those, and that's what we did that project with, you know. So, um, yeah, no, it's 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 very interesting um, because the you know the admiration you know I have for him and you know we share. It's very uh, it's very cool, you know. I have a lot of respect for him and a lot of respect for what he's done, his travels, and really just more who he is as a person, you know. That had nothing to do with weed, you know. Just you know, he's just such a fucking cool guy that you know. He's very likable, you know, very sweet guy, you know. So then when you start to research, like, or even, like, you know, if you just research one of his trips, you know, or one of his travels, you're like, whoa. <laughs> it's, like, pretty impressive, you know. Um, so, yeah, you know, um, it's kind of the kind of the, the, the brief rundown of it, to be honest. So No, brilliant backstory, and I can, I can certainly attest he's a very cool cat. He's definitely one of a kind. Interesting you brought up the ancient OG because I wanted to ask you about that. What sort of attributes do you think that male brings to certain hybrids? And I've always had this suspicion that like the ancient OG was such a crowd favorite because of that mythical Iranian in it. Have you ever yeah. seen that sort of thing come through in the crosses? Yeah. So, I mean, for me personally, that that's the reason I like it, you know, the... um and I'm not sure if it's from the Iranian that's like that that's bringing all these qualities, but um, you know, from shape, um, you know, bud shape to trichome size to um, you know these kind of very interesting because you know the snow lotus has such a you know a prominent smell that this ancient OG doesn't bring that to such a degree, right? So. I think that's what it is, right? Snow Lotus, Iranian land race, or something like that. Yep. Um, and then, uh, you know, so that Snow Lotus, you know, usually is pretty strong. Um, it comes in pretty heavy, and it doesn't with this one. It's more of the Iranian that, that I'm assuming is coming in because it's it's something different than the Snow Lotus, you know. So it's like, 
um, you know, the first first nug I had of it, I enjoyed it so much that I was just like I was kind of on a hunt for it after that, you know. Um, and Motherload Gardens did a cedar increase of it, you know. So I was gonna link up with him and get some seeds from him and try to do a project that. And then I just hit up, you know, Bodie, and he's all, "No, oh, man, I got a bunch of males. Let's do it with these." I was like, "Oh yeah, <laughs> all right, let's do this then." So yeah, the, it's very, it's a, it's it's a it's a cool it's a cool um, it's kind of like honestly what it reminds me of it reminds me of land race terps with a with a new age style of structure, you know. Yeah, wow, interesting. I noticed that some other strains you were offering were utilizing the Raz, which I believe is a, a cut of Goji OG. Is that correct? Yeah, so I, I have the Pine Sol and the Goji Raz that um, Bodie gave me some years back, and that Pine Sol I really like a lot. The Goji Raz I like. It's just a little not my headspace. You know, it brings me. It's a little more indica head, and that's um that's a little heavy for me personally just it's a little tiresome for me so yeah sure 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 so i noticed in your work that there's often really interesting sort of crosses that often utilize sort of plants that aren't really used in the same way like I think you mentioned earlier the tangy land i've noticed that you've used that one before and for me personally that was a strain which i don't feel like you see it pop up all that often what was it about the tangy land for example that made you want to use it was it just a killer strain and do you in general look to utilize plants which maybe aren't being used in other people's breeding work or it's more just about what the plant has to offer well, yeah, with the tangy land, the reason I used it because it had this straight, like, burnt rubber lemon tangy vibe, you know? So it, you know, it's purple, it had this look, it had this smell. But um, personally, you know, whenever I do a lineup or whenever I'm going to pollinate, I just kind of usually pick five or ten of my most favorite strains at that moment and I just pollinate them, you know? So it's not there's not a whole lot of um, head science to it. It's more just like intuition and what I feel like doing more than anything. Sure. And when you make strains in general, do you tend to sort of pollinate all the females you've got, maybe test them out and see which ones are really working? Or do you tend to conceptualize it a bit more and think, oh, you know, this female with this male is going to work really well and make them a bit more like that on, say, on paper more so than just haphazardly? Um, I think everything I do is kind of haphazard, but, um, yeah, no, I mean like most of the stuff I'm trying to line up together to, to make it pencil out in the end, you know? So if I'm doing a bunch of OGs, I'm going to, you know, do some OG oriented towards those. Um, you know, I'm not going to try to mix the turd profiles up too much cause I don't want, you know, I've experienced that with the hazy that anything I cross hazy with would turn into hazy, you know? <laughs> so it was like, uh, that wasn't the best with some things, but some things worked out really good. Awesome, awesome. So, when you do make a new strain, do you like to test it in-house? Do you test it with testers? And how many seeds do you like to see popped, if so, to get an idea of what's inside that gene pool? Um, usually, everything I give, I give to two different people. My one friend in, um, in Peru, and he tests a lot of things down there. And then um, another friend in um, Southern Oregon that tests... Um, them down there in the outside environments outside greenhouse and all that so i'd like to do a pretty pretty rigorous test and i you know like to give it to my friends and have them run it and tell me what they think and all that kind of thing so i'm not just trying to release stuff i have but that's not that's not what i'm trying to do 
even the stuff that I have released without testing, I test and then, uh, you know, just to make sure too, you know, I've, I've, I have sent some strands out that I haven't tested, but then I've later tested them and feel good about it. So it's not that big a deal, but yeah, for the most part, I'm trying to test everything. Um, and, but me personally, you know, all I'm going to do in my own personal testing realities is pop 10 seeds. And if I can't get a superstar out of those 10 seeds, it's not, not, not something I'm really wanting to, to release, to be honest. Yeah, sure. It raises an interesting sort of question because for the longest time there's been sort of this um, underlying idea within the community that you have to test your seeds before you release them. And then more recently we've seen the advent of breeders who are open about the fact they say, you know, I'm selling these seeds, they're not tested, so they're quite open about it. But then there's still, and, and like in a certain regard people are like, oh, well, that's okay, you know, you're being upfront about it. Um, but then, you know, when maybe they've got a bone to pick with that same breeder, they'll then be like, well, you don't test your seeds, you know? And it's sort of like, do you feel there is an expectation to test seeds or do you feel like just being honest is more important and it actually doesn't really matter what you do? Where do you sit? Well, I think being honest is the number one thing that should be happening. If people want to risk, um, you know, because I've, I've just recently sold stuff that's untested because people wanted it so bad. And I said, dude, I haven't tested it, but if you want to rock it, I'll sell them to you. But I'm just telling you, man, I haven't tested them, so I don't know. And they're like, I don't care, dude. <laughs> just buy them, you know. So it's cool, you know. Honesty is the key, you know. Um, I mean, me personally, I think ethically I want to test my gear because I don't want to send stuff out to people that's not going to do good. Um, maybe not going to germinate good, um, not going to perform good. I don't, I don't want that for people. Um, even if I, but if it doesn't perform good, um, because of their conditions, then it's okay too. Um, you know, I, I have a hundred percent money back guarantee, not money back, but I'll just replace your seeds. I'll give you packs of seeds. If you don't even like anything, you don't like the way it smelled, you don't like the way it grew. It didn't pop for you. It wasn't as strong as you wanted, whatever. You just let me know. I'll just give you new seeds. <laughs> I don't even care. You know, it's not a big deal, you know? So, um, that's just kind of where my ethos is on that, on that. Yeah, I, I saw your post on Instagram and I was really impressed with your return policy in case people aren't aware. It's just basically saying that no matter who you got the seeds from, no matter how you came about acquiring them, like if you've got the packaging and you can show me, you know, that they were my seeds and you're unhappy with the results, I'll sort of sort you out with something going forward. Do you think that that's a policy that other breeders should adopt more so going forward or... What's your thoughts on the way other breeders offer return policies? I know that notably some breeders are, are you know, quite reluctant to offer replacement seeds. Do you feel like there's a happy medium or do you feel like your policy is sort of the best option going forward? Oh, I don't, I don't think I, you know, people can do whatever they want. It's not my business what other breeders do or what other people are doing. You know, I just do what I do because that's what I like to do it. That's the way I like to do it. That's what makes me feel good in the end, you know, um, I don't, you know, yeah, what other people do is not my business. I don't know. I don't want to try to make a standard for everyone how they should think and be, you know. That's already happened enough this last year. I think it's stupid. So <laughs> I don't want to get involved in that. Yeah, understandable. And I mean, recently there's been a lot of discussion over the past year or so about this idea of if you buy a packet of seeds, are you entitled to sort of do with them what you want? Meaning, if you find a male from those seeds, should you breed with it? 
Do you feel like it's okay for someone if they've bought a packet of seeds to go ahead and breed with it? And because I think, you know, we've kind of seen some breeders who get a little bit upset at that. And it does raise this question of, you know, well, if you've bought the seeds, like, do you truly own them in the sense that you can do what you want with the progeny? Well, don't you? <laughs> I mean, you bought them, you own them. <laughs> it's like, that's kind of how I look at it. And I've already given everyone the pass to do whatever they want with my genetics and they don't even have to credit me they don't even have to give me a name they don't have to give me anything i don't care they bought it you know do whatever they want this this is a plant the plant's free you know freedom's free too you know so do what you wish i'm not the i'm not the boss and i'm not the gatekeeper you know so i think people should be able to do whatever they want with whatever they own i think they should be able to do whatever they want in their own mind and their own actions um i don't want to be the one that controls it so when people do ask me hey man is it cool yeah do whatever you want Rename it whatever you want. Do whatever you want. That's called freedom. And I'm into that kind of thing. Yeah, strong point there. I like that. So on a kind of different note, I've seen on your Instagram that there were some photos I saw of these really impressive looking plants that were grown in greenhouses. And as far as I was concerned, they look as good as some of the top sort of indoor you see. Do you think that greenhouse-grown product will become a mainstay of the industry going forward? And do you think there ever might come a time when it gains the sort of top-shelf status over indoor? Or do you think indoor is just always probably going to hold that title? Well, I think, um, I mean, me personally, I think um, mixed-light greenhouse is probably going to be a way of the future at every level um, because you're going to be able to advance and get higher trichome cannabinoid counts. Um, when you do a sun plus mixed lighting, um, because you have the sun plus you have these other spectrums, um, that are artificial and that does something. Um, I think even just light deprivation greenhouse with proper, um, climate controlled, uh, greenhouses is going to be the, is going to be the future. Um, personally, just because of the overhead and the P and L's and ROI of what that product is. So, um, you know, me personally, um, even with all that greenhouse herb, it was grown so good. It was so tasty. It, it's just, um, and I smoked a lot of it. I mean, I, I still prefer indoor. That's just me, you know? Um, but if I were to, you know, if I were to have grown the greenhouse in the same, um, boundary protocol as I would have the indoor, I mean, it's, it's just the way of the future, really, um, to have a climate-controlled, um, non-artificially lit, with artificial supplementation. Um, I think that's just the way of the future, honestly. I'm not a fan of outdoor herb, meaning like full-season grown outside, like with all the dust and all the dirt and all the wind and all the conditions beating on the plant the whole time that's not really i'm not a fan of smoking that um personally um but i'm a huge fan of smoking controlled climate controlled greenhouse yeah certainly and on that topic of greenhouses what's your thoughts about big ags move into the canna space there seems to be a lot of concern about it but we've also seen on the other end of the spectrum that a lot of the canadian lps and some of the American ones have been kind of going bankrupt like dominoes in a sense over the past few years. Do you think this is a growing trend and do you think we do need to be concerned about big ag moving into the canna space? 
Well, I don't think we need to be concerned. It's going to happen. You know, I'm most of my products that I buy are from big ag suppliers, you know, so why, why would you buy beneficial bugs from like your grocery store when you can get them from a big ag supplier that's going to be like a tenth of the cost, you know? Um, why would you buy gallons when you can buy 55 gallon or, you know, totes or whatever? It just doesn't make sense, you know? And the only way you can get those is usually from, you know, big ag, you know? Because um, they're the, the housing housing formats for these, you know? So I mean I'm not worried about it. I like I like the I like the big ag influx to be honest because they have a lot of knowledge and information of scaling that just isn't in the cannabis industry. Certainly, that's something I try to keep in mind because I I forget who we were having a discussion with, but we were talking to someone one time about how a lot of the sort of um, processes and technology that are kind of being touted as the, the newest and most improved in the cannabis industry were often pioneered by big ag in like the 30s or the 40s even. What's your, exactly. What's your thoughts on the idea that they have a, a good place to play in the sense that they're probably going to end up producing sort of more of like the Bud Light equivalent for the casual enthusiasts and then the older heads are sort of the craft brewers. Do you subscribe to that sort of idea? Well, what I what I see happening is basically there there are some collaborations happening with with a lot of this because when when we start working with um, big ag and we start working with these bigger bigger companies, they're going to want to work with people like us because we're going to be the ones holding the relationship to the plant information. We're going to be the ones holding all the genetics. We're going to be the ones that can, you know, with with their with their input. And with their information and with their help and our help really reach new heights of this industry, you know? That's just my perspective, Mel. Certainly. And do you think there are any specific lessons that the big producers could learn from the small-time growers? And I guess specifically what I'm interested in is there seems to be this critical point where at a certain point in scaling up, the quality just inherently goes down. Do you think that there's something the big producers could learn from the more craft growers to get over that, or do you think it's just a problem of scale? Um, no, I don't think it's a problem of scale, personally. But the, I think um, the cultivation aspect is 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 um, not something that can, that's going to be hindered so much by scale. I think it's more of the um, more of the processing aspects that are limited by scale. Yeah, okay, interesting. So do you think that there will always kind of be a spot in the market for the mum and pop connoisseur producer or do you think with the changing laws it's going to become harder and harder? Well, it's for sure going to become harder and harder for the mom and pop because unless that mom and pop is working with someone um, that can take it to the next level, it's going to be really difficult for them to survive. Um, that's just how it goes, you know. And that's how we've seen in every other industry. If you even look at the whiskey industry um, with like, you know, bourbons or like, you know, craft beer, it's the same, you know. Most, most of these mom and pops aren't, you know, or even the small craft breweries, they're not mom and pops. They're, you know, a, a diva style artist that's backed by someone with money, you know, that so you got this craft brewer that's a high end brewer. And then they're backed with um, by you know a hedge funder or a friend that's got money or something like that to take them to this next level. So most of these craft breweries are like that, you know. So if we look at that industry, um, you know, it doesn't look good for 
the mom and pop little grower in Mendo, you know? Yeah, sure. So do you think that maybe a necessary step in progressing forward is that people kind of look to reach out and make these partnerships or, you know, foster a sort of more friendly relationship with other people? Because at the moment we see a lot of people trying to create their own little brand with a small team. Do you think maybe it's more advantageous to try to do something on a bigger scale in partnership with other people? Um, I mean, even like myself, if I wouldn't have um, made the partnerships that I have, whether they be friends or whether they be colleagues, whether they be whatever they are, if I wouldn't have made these partnership, friendships, connections, relations, I wouldn't be able to succeed like I'm about to. Um, it just wouldn't be possible. It is with the right relations. It is with the right connections. Um, so that's just how I see it. If, if anyone thinks they're going to do it on their own, I mean, good luck. Because how are you going to fund that? We even see how the California industry pretty much shut down anyone with under a million dollars, you know? So, meaning a, 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 a liquid million dollars that you're able to just throw away, you know? <laughs> yeah, we, that's been a focal point of discussion on the past few episodes. And most notably, we've seen there's a bit of an exodus of people from California going to other states, notably places like Oklahoma and um, a few other places that have got sort of a more lax... Uh, set of rules at the moment do you think these states will basically continue to flourish or do you think legalities and the things which have turned California into what it is right now will eventually catch up with these other states no I think some of these states saw that saw what California did and didn't want to do that you know they saw what happened and they didn't want to do that they wanted to actually create business for their for their state versus California basically creating so many hurdles where business isn't going to happen in the state unless you're, you know, unless you got a huge backbone of cash. So, um, yeah, it's been really difficult for people, I think, that way. Are there any states that have kind of particularly stood out to you as seeming more kind of welcoming to people who are looking to get a get their business up and running? Or would you say, look, if you're doing it now, just do it where you're at now and just do a good job? I mean, Oregon, Oregon, it's been pretty easy. Most states that are happening now are pretty easy. Oklahoma's really easy. Um, you know, obviously Michigan, you know, New York's going to pop off soon. Florida, these places are, you know, but a lot of them are, they're hurdled through licensing hurdles, you know? Um, so, I mean, for me personally, I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not telling anyone to get into the industry to be honest, because you know, I don't think it's a good play unless you've already figured it out, you know, or unless you're coming with something new or something hot to the market. I mean, a new brand. Really? <laughs> now? It's a little late, I think, you know. Yeah, for sure. So, something I wanted to chat to you about is that you are a passionate fan, like myself, of organics. So, I'd love to <laughs> know... What is your recommendation for someone who's looking to get into organics? Maybe they're transitioning. Maybe they've never grown before. What sort of a base setup you might recommend to them? And do you, um, you know, follow a particular style of organics or are you just kind of a mix and match and use what you like? Well, I, um, I mainly use dries. I'm coming out with my own line and my own soil line. So 
that's what I use right now is I'm using all my own products that I'm in collaboration with another company that I won't mention here right now. Um, I guess until we release, you know, but we're all in the licensing process right now of offering a, you know, a start to finish soil and, a, you know, three part pelletized nutrient, some, um, you know, liquid, um, cold extract, um, forest hummus liquid product, you know, these kind of things that are, um, basically that's my, that's what I use now. I use that with a couple other products, you know, I use, a you know, a liquid food compost and then, um, that's a liquid I use. And then I use, um, EM also. So, you know, just basically pretty simple organics. Um, but, um, you know, a lot of dry amendments, very little products. I mean, I don't think you can buy any of the products I use from the grocery store. So, um, everything's either on bulk, bulk ag, or you know, those, these type of these type of genre. All organic though, dry, pelletized, or like I said, um, you know, EM is a basically like a super lab, you know, with a bunch of other probiotic reality to it, um, you know. And then the liquid food compost is hydrolyzed food composts. They add enzyme to and break down the food compost to make a liquid nutrient with it. So. So that's the basics. Yeah, brilliant. And do you think that organics can be utilized or even automated such that it can be used by bigger facilities? Because this is a sort of idea we've oh, for sure. heard. Yeah, we've heard a lot of people say that you, you just don't see it happening. Do you see a day where there will be, you know, a big producer who utilizes no-till or something like that? Well, I mean, like even our ours is a somewhat no-till, but yeah, like... Honestly, it's, you're going to have to love the plant, you know, because this organics thing isn't for the money. It's for the love of it. And the, the P&L and ROI of it works and it can scale heavily um, if you know what you're doing. If you don't, for sure you're going to fail um, and you're not going to produce what you need. If you know what you're doing, then you're going to succeed. Um, I think it can, uh, you know, the thing is, is just the yield of convention is, is, is better, you know, so you're going to get more, you're going to get more, more, more herb with, uh, chemicals, you know, and, and I haven't been able to get more weight out of organics yet. Um, I've been able to match it and I've been with through led and all this kind of stuff, but, um, I haven't been able to surpass, um, conventional, uh, weights, conventional cultivation weights with organics yet. Um, but I won't, you know, personally, I don't ingest anything that's grown with conventional salts and all that. So, I mean, even if I grew it with that, I wouldn't be able to smoke it. So, um, you know, that's just what's up. I only, I personally only smoke organic herb. Um, I usually 95% of the time eat only organic food. So obviously, unless I'm going to a restaurant, things like this, you know, so that's just how I, this is how my makeup is. Yeah, certainly. I, I subscribe to the same sort of ideas in trying to eat organic where possible. And you raise this sort of interesting idea in my mind that a lot of people who grow organic tend to become more conscious of these sort of things about the types of food they're ingesting and trying to get more nutrient-dense food or inputs wherever possible. And I think it was even Bodhi who said that you know organics can be like a, a gateway to just gardening in general. Do you agree with that? Do you find that you also tend to just grow potatoes and, you know, just w whatever it may be because you've learned about how to grow organically with cannabis or was it the other way around for you or how did that work? Um, 
it was kind of the other way around for me. I learned to grow. I mean, Eugene, if you had, you know, chem weed, like hydro grown weed in Eugene, you're like looked down upon, you know, if you didn't have like the dankest organic herb, you weren't like anyone in Eugene, you know, that's kind of just how the vibe was there. You know, it wasn't like you're busting out. You're like, oh man, I got this hydro dude. Check out this hydro weed. It's so dank. That's just not what's not happening. You would get laughed at there, you know? Um, that's just how the, the culture was there, you know? So it's just different, you know, I don't know. It's interesting you mentioned that because in places, in other spots in California and around the world, you know, for the longest time, you know, I got that hydro was touted as being the bee's knees. But I feel like in the last few years, at least in the sort of educated consumer's mind, the indoor no-till organic cannabis has become synonymous with the highest quality. Have you found this to be true in your experience? Um, I mean, I'm still waiting for people to give me a jar of weed that's danker than my jar of weed. I don't know. I'm not saying that I got the best weed by any means, but I sure would love someone to give me a jar that's better so I can smoke it. Okay, interesting. And then I want to be, and I want to be friends with that person. Yeah, definitely. I mean, have you ever been given any jars that were particularly impressive? Maybe not better, but just still quite impressive. People don't usually give me weed for some reason. I don't understand why. Oh, there you go. All right, people, we're putting the call out. I mean, I have one friend that um, is from Eugene that I I always enjoyed his herb, and his herb was always dank. Um, he's a good buddy of mine, Brent. His uh, IG handles Fenario Farms. Um, and I got to say that in Eugene, I feel like we're the two of the better, you know, organic growers over the last couple decades there. And I think, you know, we're still two brands kicking out of that town still <laughs> so that must have meant something for all those years certainly and you raise another good little segue here and that i noticed in some of your crosses you utilize the dog walker og which was made by a friend of the show one eye who's also based out of oregon and it got me wondering do you find there's like networking and friendships within the oregon community are you friends with one eye for example or yeah, I love Rich. He's cool. He's he's cool as shit. Yeah, for sure. Rich is a good guy. Um, I mean, it's a it's a tight scene. Everyone knows each other. I'm not to say everyone gets along with each other because there's a lot of um, weird jealousies and envies and you know obtuse perspectives based out of ignorance and all that kind of stuff. Just like normal humanity, you know. And then and you know how Oregon is. Um, everyone thinks they're the best at it, and everyone thinks they're the you know what I mean? Got the best or do the best or whatever, you know, it's a weird, weird, weird area. And they want it to, you know, they want the best for the cheapest. That's Oregon, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that's like, that's all, all people buying packs, right? Well, I mean, it's, it, even in the, like, you know, any, any, anywhere, <laughs> it's like that, you know? Yeah. Okay. Most people don't even, most people don't even know what good is nationally, you know, that's just how it is. I've seen, I've seen all the, I've seen work herb, you know, I've seen boxes on boxes on boxes of the most exotic hype herb that's like whatever, and it's fucking garbage. So it's like, you know, I don't know what's happening, you know. So you raised an interesting point, which I was discussing with a friend a few years back in that we were at a grower's market in downtown Oakland and he had a jar of headband from Bob Hemphill and he also had a jar of some wedding cake from someone else. And the the wedding cake, it had the look, it had the aesthetics, it was frosty, but there was no terps to it. It didn't leave a lasting impression. It was really kind of quite lackluster in a certain regard. And yet the headband, 
it hit you in the face with these loud terps. It was the real cut. It just had everything you wanted from a headband. And yet my friend was saying to me, you know, these jars will sell for the same amount. And I thought to myself, how can that be? Like the headband is clearly head and shoulders above this wedding cake. And he was saying, yeah, but you know, the average consumer, they're used to that headband smell. They've smelt it over the past 10 years a bunch of times. And the wedding cake, it's all the bee's knees and the rage online at the moment. So my question is, how do we go about educating the community or the casual enthusiast if this is the sort of dynamic we're dealing with at the moment? Well, that's the thing is people are uneducated and they're not going to get educated um, because there's only honestly a few places in the world that have cannabis education on, um, you know, high level organics or culture, cannabis culture, all that kind of thing. It's pretty slim, you know, NorCal from Santa Cruz to NorCal to Eugene, not even Portland, I would say, but Eugene. Um, I mean, there was a culture that was happening there for a long time, especially before weed was legal everywhere, you know? So that culture is something that's not going to happen anymore. And only few people have that perspective and understanding. So of course it makes sense why all this, everyone doesn't know, you know, how could you think, uh, you know, a gelato cross that's grown with salts that has no terps is better than a, a good headband, you know, or whatever, you know, or a good OG or a good, you know, it's just, it's just, there's just, it's lack of education, you know, lack of understanding and lack of perspective. That's just my perspective, you know? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, on a different note, what would be some advice for an aspiring breeder? This is a question we commonly get asked by the fans. How would you recommend someone go about getting their foot into the scene and maybe getting some crosses out there to the masses? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I would, I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest people to start breeding. To be honest, you know, <laughs> like not to make money. If they want to breed just for their self and getting getting seeds out there, I think they should just pick whatever intuitively they like the best, whatever they strive for the most, and do that again on the male side. Blend them and like start just making stuff and giving seeds out and you know, do whatever they can to get seeds out, but not to make money. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest anyone to get into breeding right now. It's pointless. Yeah. Okay. So it's a bit saturated in your opinion. Well, I mean, you can imagine some new strain person or new breeder that's going to be new and doesn't have any track record history, you know, street cred or any of that, trying to make a business out of that. I don't know. You know, good luck. I don't know, and I would, I would, I, I just don't suggest it. Personally, I suggest if you want to breed right now, just breed for the love of it, and you know. And if you want to do it for the money, then don't. You kind of raise an interesting point, which we've discussed a little bit in the past. In that, is it possible for someone to get in the industry now, coming to the game so late? Specifically, I often hear this referenced in regards to like vape carts and maybe products which in the past there have been a little bit of shady practices you know is it possible for someone to start a company trying to make a product like that or trying to sell cannabis or breed seeds with good intentions or is it just simply like the boats left i mean i personally think the boats left but that's just that's just me you know i mean if you're 
if you got a huge hedge fund and you have unlimited money and you want to throw, you know, a quarter million, half a million at branding and you want to like do it like that, I'm sure you can make it, you know, because we all understand it's all optics right now. Right. Um, so if you're, if you got the money to brand hard and get into those optics, I'm sure you can happen. No problem. But, um, no one that's from the street or no one that's from the industry that's known anything is going to care and give you respect. That's just how I see it. But yeah, certainly. And I'm mean, a tough, tough crowd out there. You know? <laughs> <laughs> certainly. And on that topic of a sort of changing landscape, I've noticed that the breeding landscape itself is starting to change a bit. And we're beginning to see breeders like, for example, Jay Beasy, step away from seed selling as the main avenue and more so looking into licensing their cuts or their sort of cultivations to different facilities. Do you see this as something which will continue to happen going forward? And do you think we risk maybe getting to a point where home growers are kind of finding it hard to get good quality seeds if that continues? Well, I think it's hard already to get quality seeds. I mean, I've I've tested a lot of stuff and the reason I'm I'm doing what I'm doing is because when I test a lot of gear and try to find good stuff, it's hard for me to find, you know. So, um, you know, that's just my perspective. So I started doing it myself and doing what I wanted myself and trying to, you know, make things out of my own intuition and all that. Um, you know, so I think it's pretty hard right now for people to, you know, find good seed, honestly, you know. I think it's hard to find good genetics. I think it's hard to find the truth you know it's easy to find whatever but it's hard to find the good stuff i think you know unless you're unless you're working with some some good old trusted people you know and you know those are those are those are in the industry very obvious very easy to find it seems like um you know there's a there's a couple handfuls of really quality good people that are breeding and 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 they got the they got the credentials to back them most of them while we're talking about that sort of you know bigger facilities and working with things like that have you ever been to facilities and found certain cultivars that you think really work well in a sort of bigger monocropped environment and if so which ones would you recommend well i mean really any any columnar style you know plant is going to do good in a you know giant sea of green or scaled out grow you know it's pretty much like uh low uh low brack to leaf ratio i mean low low uh, leaf to brack ratio and high testing and you know medium medium speed growing and it's it's just that you know most of my breeding i'm trying to select for certain things like trimming and these kind of things so i'm not trying to grow breed a bunch of leafy stuff that doesn't have a uh, high cannabinoids, you know? <laughs> so, um, on the scale level though, I think that, you know, a lot of the designer strains right now, I mean, there's a reason they're being grown the way they're being grown, you know, they, they do well in those conditions for sure. I mean, all the, you know, gelato cookie cross kind of stuff. It's, uh, you know, grows good in that style. Yeah. I mean, you just mentioned that, some of the traits that you're breeding for being like, you know, ease of trimming and things like that. If you had to list in general some of the traits that you think are advantageous and you look to have within your projects, what would they be? Um, Terp profile, cannabinoid, um, cannabinoid production, then structure, trimmability, you know, 
Brack to leaf ratio, all that kind of stuff are my really specifics, you know, almost in that order, you know, turf profile and cannabinoid content. Those are equal for me. And then, um, they both have to be awesome. And then structure of the plant, trimmability, that goes, that's kind of in that order, really the trimmability and structure equal and, you know, uh, cannabinoid and terp reality are equal to me. They should be taken into account equally. That's just my perspective. Yeah, nice, nice list of traits there that you look to work into your lines. I noticed that you did some fems where you reversed the hazy cush onto some other females. What sort of results did you find from these crosses? And did you find that the hazy cush was kind of dominating or a bit more passive and let the other strains shine through? They're right in the middle of testing right now. I think I'm about five, 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 six weeks in flowering right now. So it's all starting to show. Are there any that have sort of caught your eye early on or still yet to be seen? There's quite a few. What was sad is I reversed the Luke Skywalker OG um, and I crossed it by the purple Hindu Kush thinking I was going to make this, you know, make the infamous epic purple OG. Instead, I got a bunch of herms. Oh, no. <laughs> like like every, everyone almost hermed out of it. I was like, whoa. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> life. Yeah, right. I guess there's something within those two that just don't compute. But on that topic, do you think that breeding with mothers that come from fem seeds or even S1s are more likely to make the offspring unstable? I mean, I think it has that potential for sure. Everything, everything where the potential is there is going to give that, um, give that expression in some way or another. Sure. And a sort of hypothetical question I've been asking guests lately is this. Let's just say you made a strain and it's producing the most amazing progeny you've ever seen. Like without fail, the best you've ever seen. But the catch is there's like 40% Hermes in the line. Would you at that point think, you know, I just got to 86 this project? Or do you think, you know, I'd, I'd release it, I'd just warn people? What to you is an acceptable limit of Hermes if it was a really fire strain? Um, I don't know. I wouldn't release it if it was Hermes. That's just me. Yeah, sure. I just, that's just, I'm, I'm, I'm just don't want people to experience that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think people are up to par in their cultivation skills enough to catch it. So I don't want to put that on them. Um, I wouldn't want to be responsible for that. Sure, sure. I mean, if I were to have something and 40% of them would be Herm, just like this LSOG where 80% of them were Herm with the purple Hindu Kush, I think two of them weren't. So I'm, I'm growing those two out still. <laughs> you know, I'm hoping they're going to be really sick clones, you know, like clone-only elites or something, you know. <laughs> so they're not going to get released, but they're going to be in-house. Yeah, okay, sure. So maybe like the middle ground is if you find a stable clone, release the clone. Yeah, if you're to, you know. Cool, okay. So something which caught my eye on your website was that you have a nice write-up about the Platinum Girl Scout cookies and you kind of talk about how that's the Girl Scout cookies you commonly use and it got me wondering, what is it about the Platinum that really draws you towards it as opposed to the myriad of other cookie cuts? Well, I mean, the reason I just... I'm a, I'm, a, I'm using that cookies cut is because it was the first cookies cut, you know? So... And, you know, I, I just got it as Girl Scout cookie. I just I just called it platinum, you know, because um, there's a bunch of different cook, cook, cookie cuts going around. But my friend gave me that cut right when cookies came out. And um, his name's Alec Dixon, and he owns SC Labs. And 
you know, he got that cut from the boys right when it right when it started going around. And he gave it to me, so that's that cut. So I just called it the platinum, but it's I think it's just the original Girl Scout, to be honest. Okay, and the, are there any traits about that one which you think make it sort of stand a little bit ahead of the others? Yeah, the trichome production, the, the vigor, the um, the the smell, the funkiness of it. It's just like just rank. It was like rank skunk fuel and cookies you know so it was like it was like that smell plus it was just stronger than the other ones that i've seen you know so and i noticed that you had done a crossover with the illusion og which i believe is a strain from compound genetics what was the story on that cross and what drawed you towards the illusion og to use that as a male well just as genetic profile and from my understanding it's um weiss genetics um jeff you know jeff was the main breeder for compound before that debacle happened and um you know from my understanding jeff from y east was the one doing all the breeding and doing all the pheno hunting and doing all the selecting and throwing all the pollen and collecting all the genetics and all that so um so anyway um so that was actually from um from 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 y east from jeff from y east you know so yeah even though you know there's a you know there's a lot, always lots of controversy with this kind of thing, but for me, it's the person that collected the genetics through the pollen and grew it in their house is the owner. <laughs> so all that points to Y East. Sure, credit credit to Y East. I wouldn't want to not give you credit where credit's due. Well, I mean, it's just it's a it's just you know how it is in this 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 game where people break up and you know leave people off of trademark apps and do different things and try to steal different things and do different things is an interesting industry, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think it was James Bean who mentioned to me the other week that uh, as far as he can recall, Swamp Boys are the only sort of breeding duo that have managed to stand the test of time. And I, I think he might be right. Yeah, I don't really know, but I think they're still friends, right? <laughs> you know? That's it. That's it. I mean, that's what the, they're still they're still together. So <laughs> I don't think uh, it's pretty rare. Yeah, certainly. So yeah, I mean, shout out to Jeff for making that one. Was there anything about the illusion OG that drew you to it? I think did you just say it was the traits of it? Like what were they? I mean, the the the, the OGs and cams all up in it is kind of what what uh why I, why I use it to be honest. You know, that's just those are my. Those are my those are my faves. Some of those things, you know. So, I just wanted to use it, you know. Um, and there were some um, the reasons I did it too. You know what I mean? I was pretty unhappy with what happened on um, with that whole breakup. Just not that it's none of my business, but you know, I've just been treated like that from other people. So, you know, the Ghost OG, Skywalker OG, SFV, Chem Dog Sour. It's like those are all my favorites. So I was just like, yeah, I'll use this. And so when I talked to Jeff, I, I talked to him, I said, hey, Jeff, man, what's up? I said, I said, I got this um, from Chris, uh, but who, who did this? You know, who grew, who grew this? Who grew this? He said, I did. I said, Where did who, who selected the strains? Who selected the cuts? Who, who, who rounded up the genetics? He said, I did. I said, where was it grown? He's all grown in my house, my garage. I said, who threw the pollen? He's all, I did. So, you know, those are enough I dids to me, you know. Yeah. And I know, so that I just, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It's just, I just gave credit to where credit was due, in my opinion. But that's just my opinion. It could be wrong, too. So I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just saying that's the reason I did it. <laughs> yeah.
So, I mean, on a similar sort of note, I've noticed that, you know, your sort of friendship and collaborative network is very expansive and it got me thinking you would definitely have access to a just a, you know, plethora of strains which, you know, many people could only dream of getting and it got me wondering, can we ever expect to see any sort of old school meets new school strains from your work? Maybe the likes of like a land race crossed to one of your males, like a Malawi or an Acapulco Gold. I think for some reason in my head it just... I just sort of expected to see something like that and it got me wondering, well, maybe maybe it's in the works or it's yet to happen. What's your thoughts? Yeah, my, my friend um, Bob, he gave me some genetics. He's going to give them to me again because some of them didn't make the, make the, make the journey. But, um, you know, there was some land race stuff that I was going to collab with him in, and, you know, and vice versa. And so, yeah, there's that's, that's in the works too, for sure. And I got some stuff from, um, you know, yeah, it's in the works for sure. I'm just kind of um, honestly a lot of my, I'm not a lot of my stuff I'm making. I'm trying to make stuff that I'm going to be like, oh, I'm so psyched on. <laughs> I'm actually not. That's kind of selfish, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really breeding for, you know, I'm breeding for everyone else, meaning I'm going to be the one to select it through my own intuition. But then I'm just assuming other people will like it because I'm the hard headed in the in the um, tolerance level, you know. So. Yeah, no, I think that's a common sentiment we've heard from guests on the show is that they tend to breed for themselves and, you know, the the crowd's favor tends to follow that. <laughs> Sick. <laughs> Something I wanted to ask you about because I thought it was kind of cool in a way was the mystery Kush. I liked that in the sense that I felt like it was sort of a misnomer of a name because you, you obviously know what it's made of. You made it. Um, what was the story around that one and why did you decide to give it the name, you know, the mystery when, you know, it's, it's made from hazy Kush? Well, like I was saying, I didn't know actually which one, who the, which, what the male was. <laughs> I had the seed, but I didn't, I didn't actually, wasn't positive, you know, until I tested it all. So that's why it was mystery. But I'm like, man, this smells just like this hazy Kush. <laughs> I smell, call it mystery haze, you know? And then when I found out it wasn't a mystery anymore, it was obviously, it was, it was obvious, you know? Sure. And how would that one differ if someone was kind of toying between getting those two? How would you describe the differences? Um, I mean, the Hazy Kush is much more complex, um, to me, much more desirable. Um, but the look and the appearance of the mystery is just so, you know, desirable in that end. I don't actually don't like the high of the mystery that much personally. Um, comparatively to the Hazy Kush is one of my favorites. Sure. So I noticed on your website that it's kind of geared a little bit more towards what I felt was sort of like a management or sort of consulting role for potential clientele. Is that something you hope to get into in the future in terms of like helping facilities with their cultivar selection and whatnot? And where do you see yourself in the future in the industry? Oh, well, that's a big part of our future, to be honest, because, you know, we've created the conditions. We're working on this new light that's basically, um, you know, I've tested a lot of LEDs in the industry now, and this one pretty much crushes all of them to pieces. There's not even a comparison, and it's got a pathogen preventative um, on it, too. So it's, I mean, it's on another level, so I'm really excited to release that. Um, and then we're going to release that with a full spectrum of, you know, consulting, genetics, the whole bit. And we're, we're positioned pretty heavily to do that with our partners and with our group. So we were just being patient, hitting it at the right time, hitting it at the right moment 
and in the right way. Do you see a day where maybe green body genetics are a, a little more rare and harder to find because you're sort of more wrapped up in that side of things or do you hope to sort of be able to offer both? Well, I, I'm hoping to offer both because I think they go hand in hand and as the markets come on and international markets come on, you know, there's going to be a lot of things happening. We got a lot of stuff working in Jamaica right now with some partners and we got a lot of stuff getting ready to start happening that we're going to start potentially doing some international seed distribution either out of there or out of Canada. We're going to, you know, it's like there's a lot of stuff getting ready to start happening. So we're really excited about all of it. That's, that's awesome to hear and sort of exciting stuff. Something which I've been talking to a lot of guests about recently is there seems to be a bit of like a cognitive dissonance that like if it's in a fancy package, you know, sort of reflective mylar bag that it's got to be the highest quality. Do you think that people will ever maybe learn to dissociate the packaging from the actual contents or do you think that's just marketing and you got to roll with it? Well, I think it's both. You know, we understand how marketing is right now. You know, you look at alcohol, how things are packaged, it's you know, it makes a difference. You know, you look at even these CBD lines in CVS or any like these, you know, these stores, you know, it's the one, the packaging is what's selling it. It's not the product, you know, they're all the same product. So if it's something that says Charlotte's web on it versus something that says something, it's going to sell more, you know? Yeah, sure. I mean, we see that cookies is continuing to expand and release more and more product onto the market. Notably, they've been outsourcing some of their crops to other producers, and we've seen the odd issue with quality control. Do you think that these companies might risk sort of shooting themselves in the foot by trying to sell an inferior quality product, or do you think that their fans are sort of loyal to the brand and not necessarily the product? Well, I think Cookies is a unique brand um, in that context because there's a lot of brand loyalty and, you know, it doesn't matter what they put in the bag. It's going to, you know, the people are going to buy it because of the branding. They pretty much crushed the branding reality. You know, they did really well. Um, and, you know, and, and they're good guys, you know. So, like, a lot of people have a lot of stuff to say about them, but they don't know these people, you know. Um, you know, they're good guys. So, that's I've, I've met them. They're good people, you know. They're cool, you know. So, um, they might have had some hurdles with some different genetics or different seed sales or different this, that, and the other. But, you know, from what I'm seeing, their branding level and what they're trying to do in the industry is pretty professional in every which way. So, you know, I don't know. It seems like a bunch of envy more than anything. If people are crushing it, you're going to have haters. And that's a big sign you're crushing it, too, you know. Um, so, you know, I mean, we we, we have some we have some stuff in in future with cookies and stuff, too, so. Um, I think people should be excited about that more than anything that's happening now, you know. Once we start throwing, you know, golden pineapple to Georgia pie and stuff like that and, you know, putting putting our twist on these things, I think that's when people should start getting really excited. But, you know, maybe I'm just self-centered in that perspective. Wow, that that's really exciting to hear that you've got that sort of collaboration down the pipeline. I know that you've done collaborations in the past. Are they the sort of thing that you want to pursue more going forward? Yeah, collaborations are fun. <laughs> A lot of stuff happens and it's good branding, you know. It's um so all those all those conditions are kind of the the conditions, you know. I like it. Sure, and I know that I've heard a bit recently about a collaboration you have with Mass Medical Strains. Where can people find those seeds or when can they expect to be able to get them if they're after them? And what sort of plants do you feel those crosses offer? 
Well, well-grown seeds is going to be one of the big, the big hubs for that, those collabs, well-grown seeds, cool beans, um, you know, so, um, yeah, I mean, you know, Mass is, Mass is a cool kid, you know, and a lot of people have, um, you know, well, not a lot of people, there's been specific few people that have tried to bully the kid. And that's one of the reasons I, um, I jumped on, you know, cause I don't like bullies, you know? And when I was younger, I used to like beat up bullies, you know? So now I'll just make fun of them on Instagram instead, you know, for being bullies, you know, for bullying a kid that's, you know, trying to do good things and he's a good guy, you know, and doesn't, he didn't do the things that these people are saying he did. So I wanted to make a, you know, make it known. And that's the reason I'm collabing with him is because I don't like people bullying kids, you know, it's not, it's not cool. So, um, you know, I think the collaboration between us and what we're doing and the, 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 the strains coming out are going to be quite unique, you know, um, very colorful, um, obviously rich in terps on a multitude of levels and they're just going to be good vibe seeds, you know, where people are just trying to do good things and, you know, help people and do good stuff. And so that's kind of, um, you know, a lot of those things are going to be really neat coming out of those crosses. I think, you know, just the, the color, the color really He's he's, he's good at bringing in that color. And I think the combo with the, with, with our strength and high octane profiles with his, um, you know, color and terp realities are gonna are gonna are gonna make some cool combos. You know? Yeah, that's that's exciting to hear that the uh, the crosses are offering such you know desirable characteristics. Something which I heard interestingly sort of mentioned, and I specifically wanted to ask you about this was that someone said to me, "Oh, you know, the the reason why he decided to not retire and come back was because Green Bodie convinced him not to." <laughs> that's true oh <laughs> uh, anyway <laughs> another bit of speculation that i've seen from numerous sources was that he came back for more or less financial reasons you know regardless of whether that's true or not is not really what i'm interested in more so what i'm interested in is this idea of the ethics behind breeders releasing seeds for profit intentionally every breeder is selling their seeds to pay the bills. Like, why, why is that, like, a point of contention? Like, do you feel like at times people just pick points to criticize because they've just got a bone to pick? Like, you know, people sell seeds for $500 a pack and people don't really get as up in arms as about you and Mass Medical selling some seeds for what's arguably probably a much more reasonable price. Do you think that there is this sort of vitriol in the community? Oh, for sure, for sure. You know, it's like... Mass will sell out a drop in like one day, you know? So of course that makes these old breeders that can't sell their seeds mad and jealous and envious, right? <laughs> I mean, just, uh, I could, I can go on for days about this kind of topic, but, um, <laughs> so yeah, no, um, mass was just, um, you know, he was getting sick of it, you know, he was getting sick of people just hating on him and for no reason really, you know, like, Cause even the, the reasons that were given to me by the person stirring up the pot the most, you know, he told me he screwed over Bodie. This person told me that mass screwed over Bodie seeds, you know? So I asked him, I said, Hey bro, what's up? Is this true? He's all, no, that's not true. I would never put myself in a position to be screwed over. That's what Bodie told me. And I said, thank you. And then, so then I said, ah, oh, these guys are full of it. And you know what they kept trying to, they kept trying to, cause this guy, you know, mass is, um, you know, he, he was, um, 
doing this fingerboarding thing when he was younger and he started a company who was selling like fingerboards and stuff and they kept trying to like pick on him for that you know oh he's this person he's that person he's the, it's like so what you know really you guys care that much about this kid you know like what's your problem you know and, that, and then it seemed like everyone was bullying him so i just was like oh yeah well you try and bully me then you know so then i jumped on jumped on board with him you know so if everyone wants to bully, then they can bully him. They can bully me, you know, that's kind of why I did this, you know, and if anyone wants to bully him or anyone wants to be that kind of guy, well, I'm down to go to my jits gym and we can have a, you know, live IG like jits battle in the gym and, you know, <laughs> we'll see then, you know, who's a bully, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not a fan of people picking on kids, you know, I'm not a fan of people picking on each other, you know, that's, that's BS, you know. So if you want to pick on people, then you can pick on people that are, that are, that'll welcome it, you know, in front of everybody, you know? And so I made those, you know, I made that very clear in the industry that I'm, you know, willing to do whatever, you know, and then seemed like everyone just got kind of quiet then for some reason. So it worked. Yeah. I, I definitely have seen a lot of what you mentioned there, which is really interesting. And it kind of raised this broader idea, which I really disagreed with, which was that, with that fingerboarding comment in mind, people were like, you know, oh, he's had this successful company in the past and he's just coming to the cannabis scene to make money. And it made me think, like, is it not possible to have been successful in another business endeavor and then come to the cannabis scene? Because as far as I could tell, that was what was going on. But people tried to make it out as though like, well, because you have this successful business in another industry, you're definitely here just to sell out. I mean, who cares what people think for one? I know for sure that Mass is in it for the right reasons, you know, and of course he's going to do it and make money too, because that's just normal, you know, it's not bad. Um, your intention is what makes it bad, you know, if you're doing it just to make money, then that's not the best, you know, but that's not what he's doing it for. I've talked to him for hours and hours and hours and, you know, we go back to that thing where someone said, oh, Green Bodie got him to, you know, get back into the industry. Well, I did. I told him that he shouldn't have jumped out. It makes him look bad. And he's, he's innocent. He didn't do anything wrong. You know, there's not one thing he did wrong. Not one, you know, no one's been able to prove anything. They just try to pick on him for this fingerboarding thing. And it's like, dude, you guys sound like those bullies that I'd like to like knock out, you know, for picking on my friends, you know, like stop, you know, and I mean, that's, that's where, how this whole sale hating thing came in, you know, it's cause it's basically, that's a strain. That's a collab strain. The hazy Kush with the Putang is sale hating. And the reason it came about was because I got tagged into, um, because someone was like, well, this green Bodie's working with mass and you know, this, you know, this dude hates mass, you know? And so they tagged me into his page and I said, ah, oh. I said, I don't know all this bickering and all this, um, this, uh, gossiping's above my pay grade i said you know and i said by the way i said who cares anyway about what i think you know i said my seeds suck my genetics suck my weed sucks don't buy it you know i said i'm the fucking devil actually and then um that's all the only time i commented towards all this and then someone commented a few a few a few uh comments down and said sale hating and I was like, what is, are they like making fun of me? I didn't even understand what the fuck it meant. You know, I'm like, sale hating, sale hating. Oh, I, I, it took me a while to get it. You know, I was like, is sale some, I thought it was some type of new millennium term, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's how slow I am. Sometimes it's these kind of things, you know, some things I'm not slow at this type of thing. I was kind of slow at this moment, you know, <laughs> and then I was finally looking it up and I was like, ah, it took me a, and then I laughed so fucking hard. 
so then that's what we started the sale hate and strain because of that one thing you know and then so basically i did this sale hate and strain did a shirt of this like buddha image and then this raffle deity image like a half and half and they release you know release shirts and then you know we all have our techniques of trolling people you know so um that was my technique you know we'll just create a strain we'll create shirts you know <laughs> we'll do our own way if you want to pick on people then we'll just make fun of you for being a bully instead in our own way you know but for me i don't like bullies so if someone wants to bully someone then you know i'm probably gonna you know try to make them feel like they shouldn't do that anymore it's like people are so uptight right now it's like come on lighten up a little bit you know just just like help someone you know that's why i'm doing this well thing you know um i'm doing this uh these uh these wells in India around the city of Budgaya, you know, because it's like, man, everyone's so like uptight and up, so pent up and about something like, Hey, why don't you guys just help someone, you know, instead of like putting your energy on focusing on your illusory aspects of your mind that create suffering. Why don't you just put that energy out and help someone, you know, it feels good. You help somebody, you know, <laughs> it's like, so here's an opportunity. You can help somebody, you know, it's really cheap. <laughs> so it's like, anyway, I'm kind of like, that kind of guy that, that likes to play these kind of games, you know, um, you know, by entangling lots of people up, putting wells into, you know, poor villages in India that they don't have water, you know. Uh, what a perfect segue, because I did wanted to ask you about the, uh, the well project. or I, I had it written down as the, the pump project. How did this all get started? Well, um, you know, first time I went to India was in 2011 um, to receive a Kalashakra initiation in Budgaya from His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Um, but first I went to Dharamsala um, and, you know, went to his monastery there, received Chakrasambara empowerment there, then went to Budgaya. So I met these two boys in Budgaya, you know, and they're the classic. They just wanted to take you around and, you know, you know yeah, how to make money off a of Westerner. And I told them, I said, hey, man, I'm not that kind of Westerner. I don't need help. I don't need anything, but if you want to hang out and you want to hang with me and go to all these cool places, I'll take you. We can have, we can be friends. I'll, you know, it'll be cool. You know, we can develop a friendship. So then every year after that, I, you know, whenever I come to India and go to Budgaya, we hang out and we stayed in contact, you know, now 10 years later, you know, um, and I always told them, I said, man, try to find something to do there, you know, like let's do something, you know, and then they come with this idea of, Hey, maybe we should do this well, you know? this one hand pump well, you know, I said, well, you tell me how much it costs, show me all the, you know, labor costs, all the pipe costs, the hand pump cost, show me the village where you're going to do it. And you show me, say, Hey John, this is where we're going to put the village. Hey John, here's the, this, Hey John, do that. So I just, you know, made them do step by step. And then we did a well, you know, and we did it and put a well in there. And then I posted on Instagram, you know, and I said, Hey, maybe you guys, instead of, um, blowing your, uh, you know, COVID uh, check on something, you blow it on this, you know, that helps some people, you know, and it kind of went viral, you know, now we put in, I think eight or nine of them, eight of them. I'm not really sure. Um, and I have um, funds for like 15, 20, I think waiting now in line to do it, you know, and these, you can understand how India is India's caste system. So these are the lowest caste in the world, you know, poorest, poorest state in India, poorest country in the world poorest state in that country or you know in that area poorest the bahara region is the poorest region of india and these are the poorest people of this region you know they, they call them untouchables lowest caste you know in this caste system there so they don't even have it's all surface level water they don't have underground water they don't have water you know so 
um, to be able to offer, you know, these people water like this, it's just something very simple. But, you know, you can see by the images on these people's faces and everything, how happy they are to have water from underground river, you know, and so it's very simple, you know, $700 to do a hand pump well from start to finish, you know, concrete pad, everything little, you know, so they have a little hand pump well there, you know, so they have fresh water now. So people just don't understand, you know, what kind of um, impact that can put on a community, you know, imagine, you know, now all these villages that were so poor, don't have fresh water, probably using bottled plastic water, whatever, probably just whatever. Now they have fresh water from underground river, you know, um, you know, maybe 50, hundred persons in each village, you know? So it's like, yeah, I don't know. I like to do this kind of thing. feels cool. I like to involve, involve lots of people to this kind of thing because, you know, from a Buddhist perspective, um, since we're doing this project, then anyone that's growing our strains, buying our seeds, buying our herb, growing our herb, anyone that's offering any type of money is towards our projects in any way from buying, whatever, selling anything. From a Buddhist perspective, they're generating good karma because we're doing these projects and we're helping His Holiness the Dalai Lama's monastery. We're helping all these things with our, you know with our philanthropic work and finances and things like that. So then anyone that's a part of our momentum is also from a Buddhist perspective, generating those good karmas, they say, you know? Um, so yeah, it's just fun, fun kind of stuff to do. Yeah. What a fantastic sort of charity or karma or paying it forward, whoever you want to put it very noble indeed. How can people get in contact with you and or sort of, donate some money themselves if they were hoping to help out with that uh, they just hit up my dm on instagram and then i just send them to the venmo and we do the whole thing you know it's like very simple you know each well too we'll do st step by step you can see the wells that we've done you know the first one is usually them saying hi so and so here's where the well is going when the guys you know and so we're trying to show that like hey this is happening each time it's fresh it's not some fake thing it's like here's all the proof you know here and everyone likes that you know so it's very simple, you know, they just hit up the DM on Instagram, Green Bodhi, say, hey, I want to get involved in one of these wells. And I'll say, okay, this is what's up. And here's how you do it. And they say, okay, boom, boom, boom. And then they get in line. You know, like I said, I have, I think, 18 people in line right now already paid for wells. And they're just, you know, they're waiting their turn to get them get done, you know. Yeah, that's really awesome. Are you planning to do any other sort of projects? Maybe not wells, but similar sorts of thing or do you think there's just still a lot of work to be done with getting the pumps in well i mean i had um his holiness Dalai Lama had um given 34 kala chakra initiations and the last one was in Gaya. so i wanted to do 34 wells first i want to do 21 wells because in buddhist practices there's a, a tara practice called 21 taras there's actually 21 of these um tara deities that are you know represent long life or um you know wealthy you know healthy all these different aspects of well-being and fortune in the sense of um, health fortune wealth fortune all these things they call them tara you know it's a tara and there's 21 of these taras so i was going to do 21 but then i'm like no nah, we're going to do that really easy we'll do 34 you know so maybe we do 100 who knows you know, with as many villages as we can we'll put them in there maybe do something else and I don't, i'm sure there'll be some other type of project that comes up right after this <laughs> i'm sure but you know um, it's holiness, the Dalai Lama's library museum projects getting breaking ground on May. So I'm, I potentially will do something for that also, or, you know, again. 
Sure. And do you hope that this sort of arms giving will continue in the community long term? Like after the 34 wells are done, do you have any projects in mind for going forward? Or do you think like at that point, hopefully there's enough momentum that people continue it on themselves? Well, I don't know. I mean, I'll keep this going as long as I can, you know. Um, I won't I won't stop. As long as people keep giving me money to do these wells, I'll find a place to put it in, in India. You know? <laughs> and that's just how it goes. Um, for sure, there'll be other projects in, to, to do right after this because that's just how it goes, you know. There's always something to do to help people, you know. There's never There's never an end to that in this world right now. Yeah, sure. So kind of on that idea of paying it forward a bit, I noticed that recently you've done some CBD work, which is kind of not as popular with the mainstream. It's often viewed as sort of a more medicinal endeavor. What are your thoughts on the CBD market? Um, well, it's pretty open right now. So, you know, we're going to get involved in it just because it's, we should. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I like it for what it is. It created a good avenue to help everyone um, be more familiar and make it more acceptable. But you know, I'm not a, I'm not so much of a fan of the CBD scene. I like CBD and THC together personally. So, yeah, okay, sure. And I see a lot of people discussing how it's really important to know where you're getting your CBD from these days. And I guess it's sort of especially pertinent given we're seeing a lot of. CBD come in from various markets around the world, international places like China often get referenced. Do you think that most CBD is of good quality or it really does matter where you're getting it from? I think it matters where you're getting it from. Me personally, I like cannabis derived CBD better personally because it has, you know, I, I, I have a strain ACDC that's my favorite CBD to be honest. And that's got THC in it. Um, so, I mean, I'm a fan, um, but I'm more of a fan of THC personally. It gives me more medicinal value. Sure. And I guess an extension of when you referenced um, cannabis-derived CBD, we've heard a lot of discussion recently around cannabis-derived terpenes, particularly in reference to the vape market where a lot of sort of um, terpenes extracted from uh, various fruits and other natural sort of products can come into play or even synthetic terpenes. Do you take the ta- the same? Do you take the same stance with that in that cannabis derived terpenes are superior? Yes, if it's used for cannabis. Um, but I'm I'm not really a fan of putting other terpenes in cannabis because we don't know. You know, like we do know that cannabis, um, you know, medicinally, if you get limonene from cannabis, it's going to be at a certain range. You're not going to, you know, but if you're getting limonene from lemons and then you introduce that into cannabis, is that safe? I don't really know. So I wouldn't want to say, you know. Sure. And I guess a more focal point of discussion more recently has been CRC, which seems to have really sort of... <laughs> I don't even know what that is, but it sounds like garbage. <laughs> you know what I mean? From what it sounds like, people explain to me, I'm like, whoa, gnarly. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's sort of like the, uh, the, the black resin you'd get out of the stem of a bong, but it's the equivalent of what you'd get out of like a dab rig sort of thing. And there's been a lot of uh, sort of... I don't want to say evolutions because I don't want to promote it as a good term, but people have basically learned how to process this in such a way that it makes it appear sort of more clean. Do you think that it's highlighting the idea that 
you know, people are going to any length to make a market. Like, I can't help but feel like this idea of people often push this idea of how, you know, you got to just trap hard to make a living. Do you think this is like the next logical step of that where people are literally polishing a turd? Well, I don't think there's a logical um, format in this, but I do think it's a, you know, an avenue to make money and that they're taking advantage of logic, eh, you know. Um, I'm not a fan of turning shit into gold, you know, that's not something that I've ever been a, a, a proponent of, you know, I'm like, you get really high end herb and then you can make really high end water hash with it. <laughs> that's kind of where I'm at, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, on that all these, topic, all these other avenues, all these other avenues are out of my league, you know? So you, you brought it up yourself. Water hash. Is this your favorite sort of concentrate? For sure, hundred percent. And why do you think it is that we just have really seen a sharp falling off of it, even amongst the connoisseurs? We it's just so hard to find. Well, people can't make it because they don't have a quality product to start with. <laughs> so it's like, if you don't have a quality product to start with, you're not going to make a quality product, and it takes work and effort and love, you know. And that's something that's lacking in our industry these days, you know. Why not just like cut your weed down, freeze it fresh? put a hydrocarbon to it and make a make make a wax or make a diamonds or make a whatever that's what people think's cool right um there's not people that know you know i just i haven't found anyone yet that's like oh man i'd much rather have that bho than this like really high-end low temp slow pressed rosin or you know some really good hash you know i just haven't found that yet so something we haven't mentioned, which I wanted to ask you about, was you referenced phylos earlier, and I'm wondering, do you think that sort of the scientific and genetic testing is going to lead the way in terms of male selection going forward, or do you think that the breeder's hunch is still going to reign supreme? Well, I think intuition and plant relation always r run supreme, personally. That's just my opinion, you know? I don't think these squares that are, like, jumping into the labs and kind of going to play overlord are going to do jack, you know? I mean, look at how look at how well it did for him now. You know, I think they let go of Mowgli, right, and whatever, and like you know, it's just a joke. You know, everyone, it's it is what it is. You know. So I've seen on your Instagram that you've worked with some tissue culturing facilities, and I'm just sort of wondering what sort of improvements can we as a community hope to achieve from the utilization of this technology long term? I think it's going to. Um, um, it's going to change the industry heavily, you know, because to offer that consistency across the board, you just can't do that in seed. You just can't, you know, you can do that in tissue culture. You can get acres and acres all to be the same height. You can get acres and acres to be pathogen pest free. You can do all this stuff. It's the future in my opinion, but you know, because often we hear about hoplite and virus and things like that. Have you seen strains that have been able to be successfully cleaned with this process? Not personally, but I, when I had hoplite in the years back when um, Dark Heart Nursery was giving it out to everybody before anyone knew what it was, you know, um, I got it from them. And then I, it took me two or three years to call out of my garden, you know, and I just did it through sight and through, you know, knowing what to look for. And, and I didn't even, we didn't even know it was called hoplite and you know, it wasn't called hop late and then it was not even called dudding then. I, we didn't even know what the fuck it was, you know, thought it was some like tobacco mosaic or something, you know. Um, so anyway, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I called it out of all my gardens. We don't have it in there anymore. So, yeah, wow. I did that just just personally, you know. 
And how did how did you achieve that? I think I heard Bob Hempel in the past say that you can outgrow it. Is that kind of what you did? Like where you would? Yeah. Please explain. So basically, you take the best cuts and you keep taking the best cuts, growing them in the best conditions, and you you basically outgrow the hoplite and you basically take new good cuts. You propagate those, you grow them out, you take new good cuts, and then you just basically cull it out, you know, eliminating anything, you know, any t- any sign that I saw of that, I would throw the soil, pot, and plant away completely. Yeah, wow, that's cool to hear that you were able to get rid of it. Yeah, man. Didn't even know what it was, then. <laughs> <laughs> I just know I didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> and neither did the plan. So on to one of our final questions before we jump into the fast fire ones at the end. I've been asking a lot of guests recently if they have any concern about the possibility of there being genetically modified cannabis, specifically in the sense that maybe it's modified such that it grows at a very uniform height or the, the levels are very consistent in terms of cannabinoids so that it, you know, it doesn't test hot or there's at least consistency. Do you think that's something to fear? Not really. Honestly. I mean... Uh, I don't know. Like in the industry, I'm not fearing much in these kind of contexts because everything's going to play itself out. Um, I just, so I guess that's that's some, not something I can really, uh, you know, speak on too much. To be honest, I don't think it's uh, something to worry about. Yeah, sure. So, on to our final quickfire questions, which we love to ask all breeders to kind of get their perspective on a few different things. The first question is, what is the most memorable cannabis you've ever consumed? I mean, I, I had some Maui Wowie when I was uh, a kid and man, I was high for like seven hours. It was some hydro weed, you know, like grown from Oregon, I think. And I don't know, that put a high on me like nothing else, really. It was, it was interesting. Um, other than that, I don't have a lot of memorable moments you know it was like the first time i smoked chronic <laughs> you know it was like it made it it made an impact and that was that maui wowie is grown hydro you know <laughs> yeah that's interesting so on the other end of the spectrum were there ever a specific strain that comes to mind when maybe a lot of your friends or colleagues were just really hyped about it loving it and then you finally got a chance to try it and you were left a bit unimpressed oh yeah that's happened a lot Honestly, multiple times. I can't even, ex- I can't even explain. Definitely happened quite a few times. <laughs> sort of the more new stuff or the older stuff? Um, both. You know, I've had some land race stuff from people that are like, oh, man, it's so good. And you're like, oh, okay, whatever. Um, and then some of this newer things, you're like, oh, man, this is the best. And you're like, nah. But then you do, you know, like, then I had some LA Kush cake that was really good, you know. But I had some of this other strain that wasn't that good, you know. So it's, I think it's like, each person, you know, each person, each grower, all that, it's all, it all comes into play there, you know? Yeah, certainly. So let's give a desert island situation. I'm going to drop you off on a desert island and you can cultivate three strains for the rest of time. Which three are you going to take with you? Wow. Um, there was this big Sir Holy strain that was out of Eugene that I first started growing that I would take that one. I would take the, um, purple Hindu Kush that I just got from 
Mr. Bob Hemphill, and I would also a good OG or sour best shit ever. I think. I think those those three. I'd probably be good. <laughs> honestly. Nice, a solid selection there. So on the other end of the spectrum, let's just say you were going to drop someone off to the island who you're not particularly fond of and you get to choose which three strains they're left with. Which ones are you going to give them? <laughs> <clears throat> well, I think I'd, even if I wasn't fond of them, I'd probably want them to have the strains that I just picked because I'd want them to evolve their mind, you know, because maybe if I didn't, I wasn't fond on them because they were like, you know, way they thought or something <laughs> i don't know um if i wanted to stick someone with some bunk strains basically <laughs> is that what you meant <laughs> yeah yeah whatever you want to do i'm happy to accept the diplomatic give, give, give them a give them a blue dream man <laughs> um blueberry <laughs> blue dream and uh i don't know what would be another one imitator pretendica strain purple punch no i don't know <laughs> blackberry sorry I like Purple Punch better. Blackberry Kush. <laughs> Blackberry Kush was a good strain to stick someone you don't like with. There you go. There you go. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, the final question for our interview today. If you could go back in time to any place, anywhere in history and collect some seeds, where would you go and what would you collect? Wow. Well, I'd have to go back in time to, you know, the Tibetan Plateau and try to like find some of those um you know root starter strains from way back thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago you know that'd be one you know wouldn't mind um you know going to nepal try to find something there i don't know you know <laughs> literally trying to find some of that source stuff give that source feeling you know go to africa maybe go down to southern africa somewhere find some durban or something i don't know really So that was what came to my top of my head, I guess, you know, those three through three regions, South Africa, Nepal, Tibetan Plateau. Yeah, fantastic. What what nice old world sort of selections. So I think that pretty much brings us to the end of things. Were there any shout outs or comments you wanted to make? No. I really appreciate the opportunity and like this was fun. That was um kinda yeah. Really, really stoked on this and really um excited about this and Hope it offers people a little bit of perspective and really just want to um, say thank you to even offering me the opportunity. Really grateful, you know. I do know that, um, you know, Bodhi said he wanted to do a uh, a um, kind of add-on to this at one point. So I think everyone can look forward to uh, um, me and him doing a little duo um, collab podcast here. So that's going to come in the future. I do know that because is wanting to do that so i think this was the pilot to that and i think we're going to come on together and you know have a bunch of laughs one day too so that might be pretty soon yeah awesome i mean sounds like we're going to have an epic time with the uh the bodhi thunderdome situation (laughs) 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 but yeah i mean outside of that thank you so so much for coming on and giving us the lowdown on uh, like your genetics some some history some culture some buddhism and your plans for the future it's been fantastic i really appreciate it and i'm really grateful and thank you so much it's been an honor
So there you have it, gang. What do you think? Huge shout out to John of Green Bodie Genetics for coming on the show and sharing all his knowledge and thoughts. Likewise, a huge thank you to our amazing sponsors. You guys help make the show happen and we're so extremely grateful. Seeds here now, number one seed bank in the game, all the hottest breeders, all the freshest drops, all the most fire strains. You know them, you love them. Why would you go with somewhere else? And I want to know at the end of the harvest, if I'm not happy, they're going to look after me. But how do you know you've done the crop justice? Well, simple. Got to check out our other two sponsors. Coppet Biological Systems, the number one spot to grab all the best beneficial predators, beneficial feeds and microbe powders to make your crop happy, healthy and a huge success. Check out the Spike or Ultimite if you've got mites and finally check out the Apapar M for Apids. You know you want your crop to be as happy and healthy as possible? Why not get the beneficial troops on standby instead of waiting before there's a war at hand already? Likewise, ProMix, you know them, they've been in the industry forever, but did you know they've got an awesome mycorrhizal product called ProMix Connect? Go check it out, it helps facilitate better nutrient uptake, water uptake, stress resistance, shorter vegetative time. Heck, we've had Jeff Lowenfell on the show before, you've heard it, you know how good mycorrhiza is, why don't you get the best mycorrhiza product on the market, ProMix Connect. Better density, better resin density, stronger aroma, more consistent results. What more do you want, guys? And last but not least, a huge, huge thank you to the one and only Patreon gang. Truly a family and the lifeblood of the show, ensuring episodes continue to happen. If you like the show and want to get access to early content, unheard interviews, little extra episodes, as well as giveaways, bonuses, and so much more, please go check out www.patreon.com forward slash the podcast I think that just about brings us to the end of it gang thanks for sticking around I appreciate you so much as always I'll catch you on the flippity flop check that hitter Oh, see ya.